but a little slower and a bigger sprite. True. So there's kind of balanced yes, out a little there's bit. There's trade-offs. And before anybody corrects you, you keep saying sprites, but I believe you want to say character models because this isn't a sprite-based game. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to say it, man. You know it. I don't give a <laughs> shit. You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Grego Stady One, discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter. This month, our listeners are in for a crossover treat as we team up with Metal Fro and Addicted from the Shoot the Core cast. We're going back to a hard-to-find Dreamcast game known as Cannon Spike, where you can play as different characters from various Capcom franchises. We'll also find out what some of your dream crossover games are when we discuss our question of the month. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFGPlaycast, and Rich is at the single banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Yeah, I don't 
Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Seems to be recording, though, so... Oh, Lord. Well, that's okay. I can always switch to the backup Tyco tape recorder if needed. Yeah, maybe uh, Satan's just in my computer or something. That's what it is. Did you install the new Windows 10 update again? <laughs> Probably. Mm, decisions, decisions. You want me to record the Skype call just in case, Rich? I suppose. It's probably not a bad idea. Eh, it's working. I mean, I'm you know, I'm getting my feed and stuff. So I think it's fine, but... It's okay. Well, you can just tape over it with music from the concert cast, right? No one will know if it messed up. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Okay, you guys, the Skype call is now being recorded. Just so you're legally aware. Technically, you're the only one in Texas. Texas is a single-party consent state. Okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. When you're out uh, using your phone or whatever to record video or something like that, and somebody walks up to you and says, I don't want to be recorded, you can tell them that Texas is a single-party consent state, meaning since you yourself are consenting to record or be recorded, like if you're doing a video selfie or you know, live blogging or something. Yeah. You're not doing anything illegal if someone else is coming in and in the video and says they don't want to be recorded. You don't have to, like, shut it off or whatever. I do you do it. that before or after they punch you? <laughs> no, even getting... Well, I don't know. With Texas, they probably would get close enough with COVID. They don't care, I would assume. <laughs> There's more mask wearing than you would be led to believe around here. Really? Maybe it's because I'm in Austin, Austin and too, it's a more liberal place, but uh, the rare times I've been out in public, I'm wearing a mask where I think it's appropriate and most other people are. Well, that's good to hear. Because around here, I've seen everyone wear masks all sorts of different ways. You know, it's not. It's sort of like a um, Picasso painting. Like, oh, someone's wearing it on their butt. That's That works well. Or just say, oh, someone's wearing their forehead. Eh, well. They're wearing a mask on their butt? No, I, I haven't seen that as a joke, but I have seen oh, people Oh, I was going to say. No, some, I did see one guy who had one, and it was mostly on his forehead. Okay. I, I was just thinking, is someone trying to protect the public against their deadly COVID farts? <laughs> yeah, that or they just had Taco Bell. I don't know. That could be. Let's not even start talking about putting one over your front parts. <laughs> I think that prevents pregnancy. Unless it's a alphetic seep otter. Wow, this turned from family friendly podcast to non family friendly really quick. <laughs> That's all we do. Skirt the line. Welcome to Shoot the Shitcast. That's at least how the first two hours go. Right. We've noticed. <laughs> So, if you're familiar with RF Generation, you will probably recognize our next two guests. We've got our good friends Battle Fro and Addicted on the show to discuss a shmup that we actually played together this month. Josh and Addicted both host the Shoot the Core cast on the site, which is basically a club for people who love shmups and they play different games every month. And you guys have a pretty great following, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been around for two years now, and I would say we've had a pretty good run so far. There've been uh, quite a few people who've kind of jumped in and out. Of course, you know, like with the like with the regular community playthrough, there are people who will participate 
for most things. And there are some people who are only interested in certain games or certain types of games. Sure. So kind of comes in ebbs and flows. But yeah, I, I'd say overall it's been pretty successful. Yeah, unless you're Dougley 007, then you'll play anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> that is true. I got to know, guys, we're kind of breaking one of our cardinal rules this month by playing a very expensive game in Cannon Spike. Right. We usually put it at about $30 max is where we like to stay with games. But this summer we decided to play this one, you know, with you guys. And then next month we're doing another quite expensive game. So uh, how do you guys go about deciding what games you're going to play? Is price a factor at all in any of that? Price is a factor, yes. Matter of fact, I have a, a Google spreadsheet that I use to keep track of what the game is going to be for each month. and there are four columns on the spreadsheet. So there's month, there's game, there's platforms, and then there's cost. <laughs> so yeah. my general rule of thumb is we try to keep everything as much as possible to retail price or below for at least one version of the game if we're playing something that is on multiple platforms or has seen several iterations over time. And then about once a year... We fudge that and say, okay, we're going to play something that is not widely available or has shot through the, the roof and is, is expensive. And so that is definitely our game for 2020. Yeah, well, as a collector, I know shmups are usually very expensive. And with everything that's going on with COVID, prices have gone through the roof astronomically if you guys have been watching them. Yeah, and I was kind of hoping it would have the opposite effect that there yeah. would be people who maybe needed quick cash and would start selling stuff so the market would kind of get flooded and then prices mm -hmm. would have to come down because there's there's too much inventory and not enough demand. But, yeah, it didn't work out that way. No. I think the government checks kind of uh, <laughs> put a stop to that and actually help the sellers. It's a seller's market instead of a buyer's market like it is with home ownership now, so it's kind of weird. Yeah, it certainly caught me by surprise as well. However, I must say, GameStop, at least the local GameStop, by them pushing out their used inventory and then keeping the price the same for an item no matter what the condition is, has certainly helped. I was able to get a Rayforce complete in box for the PS1 for $30, which is unheard of anywhere. Raystorm, right? Raystorm, sorry, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the price is the same no matter what, and it was all complete in box, had the manual and everything, and it was 30 bucks. So take a look at your local GameStops before they close. <laughs> I, I'm not halfway joking on this. I, I hope that they don't close, <laughs> but with the way that they're going, the fact they just lost a huge amount of money again, I wonder if we'll see them in November. I hope they don't. I really do. I want people to keep their jobs and all this, but it's it's tough times out there. Yeah. And to be fair to GameStop, trying to even get retro games, you mentioned prices have gone up astronomically, and to try and even get that stuff, and that's why I'm so thankful that Krabby sold a store, because trying to get that when you're paying $50 for a game and you end up having to sell it for 65 or something and try and find somebody is getting harder and harder to do. Yeah. Yeah, as more and more collectors fill out their collections with the things that they want or you know, in my case, start to run out of room. I mean, I'm not out of room right now, but based on the apartment I'm living in and the shelving system that I have in place, I don't have an abundance of room left. You know, I've left myself room to grow based on how I've got it organized, but 
I mean, I could not double the size of my collection right now. I probably couldn't even add another 25%. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now as well. Not so much for Sean, as I know, because I've probably bought about half of his collection now. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm taking advantage of the seller's market and doing the thing that I've been talking about for years, which is like a massive reduction in inventory, I guess you could say. Well, if you're not playing it and you can get extra cash for other stuff, absolutely go for it. it. You know, I am evaluating based on many factors and I've fired up some games to test them and I'll play them for five minutes and be like, I'm not selling this. (laughs) This game is pretty cool. That's happened to me a few times, but then other times it's like, okay, I have this copy of this game that it's worth triple digits, let's say. I have no nostalgic connection to it. It's just sitting here. It's not something I'm interested in. If there was ever a time to cash in, it's right now. So that's what I've been trying to do, selling some of those high-value things that don't have nostalgic or sentimental value to me. I guess uh, you got an, an extra copy of Kuan or Rule of Rose sitting oh, around. Yeah. You know, Now's the time to cash out. Yeah, so I sold my copy of Kuon like last year. I had a disc-only copy. And I will say this, my copy of Rule of Rose, I will never, ever sell because it was a surprised gift from our former co-host, Steven, also known as Disposed Hero. Mm. And still to this day, it's one of the coolest things that anybody has ever given to me or surprised me with. And I wish to heck that I was doing an unboxing video that day because... I lost my damn mind when I opened that box, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I will never, ever, ever sell that, Stephen. If you're listening, it's still a very important part of my collection. So that's cool. I'd like to add in here that Stephen has really helped me out as well. My mom recently gave me some money. And says I really like your podcast. Please use this to support it. So I ended up purchasing a Japanese Mega Drive from him, along with a couple of games that we'll be using for upcoming shoot the core cast playthroughs. So thank you very much, Steven, so we can finally get some of that sweet sound of Mega Drive action. I want to play Thunder Force 4. Well, actually, we already did Thunder Force 4. Right. Oh, we did Lightning Force. Good. We can put a different game. <laughs> Thunder Force 4. Put it down. Oh, that's funny, man. Uh, I've actually got some Mega Drive stuff to talk about a little bit later, so this should be an interesting podcast. But before we get into that... Sean, let's roll into mistakes our Apple friends pointed out. Do we have any? I don't believe I have any, but it looks like you do. So lay it on me. All right, man. So this one is completely on me. We should just retitle this segment, Things Our Apple Selves Pointed Out. I was talking about uh, the new Pornographers album, The Challengers, in our last concert cast episode uh, where we went through the best albums of 2007. And uh, I had said that I had gone and seen that tour, and I was wrong. It was the tour after that, which was in 2010, and that was the Together Tour, which was the album that followed Challenger. So I was incorrect on that. I just wanted to correct myself and correct the timeline there just in case it sounded funny to anyone. (laughs) Somebody would have to be really uh, detail-oriented to have caught that. (laughs) Well, you know, hey, 
<laughs> shows all about honesty and being open. And when we make mistakes, we let the other person know, just like uh, with the uh, Marissa interview when I didn't tell you that I'd screwed up my mic. <laughs> yeah. I kept that from you, but I came out and was honest about it. Well, I had one correction on myself as well in the music segment when you were talking about the MGMT album, Oracular Spectacular. I kept saying, oh, that, that song Safe and Sound is on there. And you were like, no, that's time to pretend, I think you're thinking of. And in a way, yeah, we, we were kind of both wrong, wrong yeah. because there mm-hmm. is a song called Safe and Sound, but it's by a band called Capital Cities. Pretty cool song. I, I really like that song as well, but not an MGMT song and not released in 2007 even. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that was. But still, check it out. Yeah. All right, so we're going to roll it into the concert cast here. We do have a topic for the whole group, but Josh, you asked us if you could start the concert cast by giving us your top five albums of 2007. I'm guessing uh, as you listen to our list, the power of the list making of albums of the year it consumed you, and we wanted to give you a chance to go over some of your favorites from that year. No, I appreciate that. It got me thinking because that was a really, really heavy time for me music-wise. I was buying a lot of music then, and I went back and looked through my collection, and I purchased over a 100 albums that were released in the year 2007. Wow. (laughs) So, I mean, I've got a handful more that were, you know, free downloads or things like that, but I just have a ton of music from that year. and so. It was a little bit harder to narrow down for 07. There were a couple of things I knew that had to be in the list, but I have spent the last week or so just listening through a whole bunch of stuff from 2007 just so I can kind of figure out what stuff do I really think is the best or affected me the most during that time. So right away, I got to rep my favorite band. Uh, they're from Japan. They're called Onyoza. I'm sure I I know I talked about them on the last podcast episode. They've been around since, what, 99? And toward the end of last year, they released a box set that has all their studio albums and then a new uh, kind of bonus disc with re-recorded versions of some songs from their first couple releases. And, and so that's a, a big deal for me. But in 2007, they put out an album called Mao Titan that in my opinion, was a a nice kind of return to form. They put out an album the year before that is generally well-regarded, but I think it's a weaker release from them. It's a little bit disjointed. The first track on the album is like the most boring thing that they ever recorded. It's just a little bit uneven as an album. And so this album is shorter, it's more focused, and it's a really solid album. And so... If you've never heard of them, but you've watched the anime Basilisk, the intro music to that anime is from this band. And it's actually from the album that I said in 2006 was a little bit weaker, but that's a fantastic song. And so this is the album that came after that. But it's straight ahead, heavy metal, but with a lot of Japanese influence. All their lyrics are based on Japanese mythology and ancient Japanese stories and things like that. And so it's all really, really cool, but uh, very Iron Maiden, Judas Priest kind of stuff. But they definitely have their own spin on the sound. 
And so for sure, that is in my top five. Next up is the long-running band Prong. Those of you who have heard the name but really don't know anything about them, they had one, I guess, big song, I'll say, in the mid-90s called Snap Your Fingers, Snap Your Neck. And yes. that got some MTV play on Beavis and Butthead when they did a segment with Beavis and Butthead sort of lampooning the video. And so that was that was a thing for a little bit. But the band had been around for uh, several years prior to that. And then they put out one more album after that and then kind of broke up because they went nowhere after that. Well, then a few years later, Tommy Victor, who's the only original member of the group, resurrected the band and did some tours. I got to see him live, put out an album that was hated and then kind of went underground again and toured with Glenn Danzig's band for a few years. Well, then he came back in 07 and he put out this album called Power of the Damager. And it is a really high quality record. It has kind of that signature prong, what I'll say is groove metal sound. There was a shift in the 90s from thrash metal bands like Metallica and Megadeth and Anthrax and that sort of thing to the, a lot of those bands in that scene shifted their music. They slowed the tempos down. They downtuned the guitars. They made it sound chunkier and a little bit heavier. So then you started to see bands like Pantera or Machine Head or Fear Factory kind of come in. You know, there was sort of a sea change with that. Well, Prong had a lot of influence on that scene from some of their earlier records. And so when they came back in 2007, he put out this killer record and it is probably the angriest thing that he's ever done musically, but in a good way. It sounds like he's got a lot of fire in the belly that you don't often hear from someone who's been in the music business for 20 plus years. The intro riff segment to a particular song on the album called The Banishment, I've got it set up as a ringtone on my phone. And so when I put calendar reminders on my phone, that is what reminds me that I have something coming up. And so I knew that had to be on the top five. The next one is from a well-known band, Dream Theater. They put out an album in 2007 called Systematic Chaos. My younger brother and I actually had the fortune to go and see these guys on the tour when they were supporting this album. And it was a fantastic show. It was my first first time to be able to see the band. And we were both just kind of dumbstruck at how great it was and how on point they were. This album in particular, you know, I don't have their whole discography. I have a few albums of theirs. But this is one that was just sort of the right album at the right time for me. And it, it just spoke to me. It was a good variation of songs. Uh, the original drummer, Mike Portnoy, had been working on a series of songs based around the 12-step program. And on this particular album is a track called, what is it, Repentance or Redemption? One of the two. And it's basically about, you know, asking forgiveness from the people that you've wronged and, you know, learning to forgive yourself for all the mistakes that you've made. And it's this really powerful sort of power ballad that they do. And it's very lengthy and it's very dramatic. And one of the cool things that they did was they called a bunch of their musician friends to record themselves 
making sort of public apologies for things that they had done wrong to other people in their lives. And they take all these recordings and then sort of layer them in as the song crescendos toward the end. And it's really cool how it all comes together and uh, just a really powerful statement. Next is another band that may not be very well known, but they're called Becoming the Archetype. This group kind of came out of nowhere in the mid-2000s and put out an album of, I guess you would call it progressive death metal. They really hit the scene and impressed right away. And then after that album came out, two of the members of the band left. And so they recruited a guitarist from another progressive death metal band called Alethean and became a four-piece at that point. And they put out their second album in 2007, The Physics of Fire. And it's a really, really fantastic melodic album with a lot of really good production. It's heavy, but it's also melodic. And there's a lot of allegory in the lyrics, a lot of references to fire, as the title would suggest. And so there's a lot going on there that you can kind of, you know, string together. It's just a really cool album. I think it might be my favorite from the band. I also have a lot of love for their fourth album that came out a few years later. But yeah, this one is is just one that I couldn't uh, couldn't overlook. And then for a complete left turn, <laughs> my last uh, item in the top five is from a group called Joy Electric. They are my favorite, I guess you could call it electro-pop band. It's basically one guy, Ronnie Martin. But he has, has had other people that have collaborated with him over the years. But the project basically is him. He has a very particular way of, of making music and doing things. He writes and records everything using only analog Moog synthesizers. So there are no traditional keyboards on his albums and no percussion other than what he's able to get out of those Moog synthesizers. But the way he can do it so that he can layer multiple tracks together of synthesizer stuff, it's amazing what he's able to produce. And he has this voice that can kind of go back and forth between this really bright, cheery, happy kind of sound and a more dark, somber kind of melancholy. And so his music is something that I never thought in a million years I would be into. But when a friend invited me to go to a show to see the group way back in like the winter of 96, I think it was, I thought, okay, I'll check it out. You know, this isn't my thing, but I'll go check it out. And when I saw the show, I fell in love with it right away. I was like, okay, this is not what I was expecting. This is cool. And so my sentimental favorite album from Joy Electric is their second release, which is what was kind of out at the time that I went to that show. But I think my other favorite is their 2007 release, The Otherly Opus. And the weird thing was, I wasn't really even listening to that album in 2007. It was a few years later when I pulled that out of the collection and started listening to it. And then it hit me. And then I just kept spinning it and spinning it. And so if you like electronic music at all, You've got to check out Joy Electric. They've been around for like 25 years and probably some of the best music you've never heard. Nice, man. You know, the Moog synthesizer was invented here in North Carolina. Oh, nice. Yeah, in Asheville, North Carolina. And um, 
over the last several years, we've had a Moog Fest where a lot of uh, electronic bands will come in like a big festival. It was really awesome, especially to have it up there in Asheville, but they've actually in the last few years moved it over to Raleigh, which is a more like populous city environment. And uh, I don't know, it's a different vibe now. But yeah, that's, that's pretty cool, man. I, I would love to hear that album. Yeah, it's great stuff. It was hard to make this choice because there's so many great albums from 2007. The band Grave Robber, they're a horror punk band from the Indianapolis area. Their debut, Be Afraid, came out that year. Fantastic uh, sort of B-movie horror lyrics as allegory. You know, there's a trio of American metalcore bands that came out during that time. Besieged, As I Lay Dying, and August Burns Red that all put out fantastic albums that year. Miseration is a European death metal band. They put out an album, their debut, called Your Demons, Their Angels. Just a monster album. The band from Italy called Borders that put out their original debut. They had been working for years as a Megadeth cover band, but they did their own album of kind of traditional heavy metal, and the vocalist is really good. And I actually got a chance to meet them in 2010, uh, which was really cool. Isley from Texas, they're my favorite indie pop band. And their second album, Combinations, came out in 2007. But for some reason, it didn't resonate with me quite as much as their debut did or the two subsequent records. It's still a fantastic record. I listened to it again yesterday, and I remember how good it was. But it didn't hit me quite as, as hard as the other ones did. It's just so much good stuff. I think that was a good year that we picked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that we could kind of uh, spurn that desire in you to uh, look at 2007 and uh, decide what your favorite albums are. It's a lot of work, you know. <laughs> we put a lot of work into that. You know, we just don't pick like five albums randomly that, you know, maybe we like. And then Sean and I put a lot of work into it, so... For you to take the time and effort to do that's pretty cool, and so we definitely wanted to give you a chance to uh, share them with us on the show. So thanks, Josh. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys letting me do that because uh, it was a fun exercise.
Well, we do have a special topic this month. We've told everyone on here to put together a list of their top three bands or artists you would like to see if deaths and breakups were not a factor. And so, Sean, you want to start for us? Yeah, and I propose to the group that we each, as we go, just do all three. So we're not just going around all four people three times. Does that sound good? That sounds great to me. Okay, so my top three, first of all, would be Nirvana. And this is my nostalgic pick. I don't listen to tons of Nirvana now, but they're a band that I really wish I could have seen when I was younger. Around the time I was like totally obsessed with them would have been a good time to see them. Uh, unfortunately, Kurt Cobain died in 1994 at the age of 27 when he was murdered by Courtney Love. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly, allegedly. Throwing the gauntlet. (laughs) I actually went to a whole show one time and she stopped playing because people were throwing shotgun shells on the stage. Oh, man. Oh, rough. That's that is rough. Too soon. My number two pick would be the Beastie Boys, who I never had a chance to see. MCA, unfortunately, passed away in 2012 at the young age of 47 of cancer. I would really have loved to have seen them in, I believe it was 84 or 85 when they toured opening for Madonna. <laughs> I would, that would be a show that I would really love to have seen. Nice. And then my number one pick, I am so glad to have a soapbox to talk about this band because I will shout this from the rooftops that the X-Ray Specs, their album Germ-Free Adolescence, is the best album of the punk era. It's better than the Sex Pistols. It's better than any Ramones album. It's better than London Calling. I'll put it up against any album from the punk era X-Ray Specs, Germ-Free Adolescence. They made a second album in the 90s, but it wasn't the same lineup. The second album is called Conscious Consumer, I think. It's pretty good, but the first album just can't be topped in any way, shape, or form. Unfortunately, the lead singer of the band, Polystyrene, passed away in 2011 at the age of 53 of cancer incredible vocalist just really great pipes belting out these awesome lyrics they have a song called identity which is about a like having an identity crisis and they have songs about consumerism and politics and the apocalypse and just all these great topics and just with these sly lyrics that i really love so i'm glad i finally got a chance to shill x-ray specs on the show because they're one of the most underrated bands of all time and definitely a band that gets slept on when, you know, the original punk movement of the 70s is talked about. So I would have loved to have been able to see them live, uh, but that is not possible now in any way, but wish I could have. So that's my top three. Cool. All right. Addicted, you want to go next? Sure. I would have to say I would start out with Ronnie James Dio. Nice. Oh. I would love to have actually seen the show when he was alive. It doesn't matter if it was Rainbow or Dio. Just to see him and to hear his voice live would be a treat. How about with Sabbath? Oh, that would have been great. <laughs> Those two albums are great, by the way, that he put out with them. 
And same holds true for my second pick, which would be Freddie Mercury and Queen. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear Freddie Mercury live. The film did a good recreation, but I would just, just to get that, that live concert feeling, it's totally different. And then I'm going to have to echo with Nirvana as the third choice. And something I came to a little bit later, but I wish that, again, you could have heard some of that grunge rock live with Kurt Cobain. I, it's something that I only interest me in became a passion of mine after Kurt Cobain's death. So at all three of these, so echoing, you don't know how good you have it until they're gone. Yeah, that's true. All right, Joss? Wow. Well, uh, Nirvana is definitely my honorable mention because I was heavy into Nirvana. Uh, here we go. Trying to add four to the list. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> these guests, man, Sean, what is up? <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> well, because Nirvana's Nevermind album was the first music album that I ever purchased with my own money. I literally bought a cassette copy from some kid at school because he needed lunch money, then came to find out later that that wasn't his tape to sell. It was someone else's <laughs> that he had borrowed. Um, but I still have that cassette. So yeah, that, that would, my, would be my honorable mention. But for me, number one would have to be the Beatles. And I will qualify that by saying, I would love to have been in London when they played the rooftop concert. Oh, yeah. With Billy Preston on keys and played all those songs. Just to be in earshot of that and have, have witnessed that would be amazing. So that's one. Two would be Black Sabbath. And I'll say either Ozzy era or Dio era. Either would be fine. I would just have loved to see either of those lineups in their prime. And then number three would be Steely Dan. I know they, they didn't tour that long, but to see them kind of toward the end of when they stopped touring in the 70s, or even if they had done a few dates later or whatever, would just be amazing. Their catalog of albums is outstanding, and um, to see that stuff played live in its prime would have been amazing. Yeah, Steely Dan's one of those bands that I just got into within the last two years, oddly wow. enough. I had listened to, you know, of course, to all their hits and everything, but man, what a tight, tight band. Just yeah. amazing musicians all around, you know? Yeah, I mean, a Asia by Steely Dan is one of my favorite albums of all time. So I know by then they, were, they weren't touring, and that was a kind of a labor of love of studio musicians and all that, but just amazing. Cool. Great list, man. Well, my first pick is someone that I had tickets to see in 2014, and I couldn't get anyone to go with me. In late 2015, this band was touring again. Uh, tickets were getting ready to go on sale for my area, and Lemmy died, and that's uh, Motorhead. Uh, I would love to see Motorhead. At any point, um, yeah. you know, but uh, probably in the early 80s would have been a nice time to see them. They're one of my favorite British invasion bands, and uh, I just love, love Motorhead. The other band that I would like to see, and I guess with this one, there is still hope, but at the same time, it wouldn't be the same seeing them now as it would have been back then. I think I've mentioned on the show before that when my brother was born, he's almost 13 years younger than me, my parents 
gave me a present from him on the day of his birth to say, oh, this is from your brother, because they felt like he was being born. I might not be getting, you know, attention or something like that. I don't know. It, it was, it's a weird thing. But my parents bought me the cassette Night Songs by Cinderella. Oh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and uh, my first CD was actually Long Cold Winter by Cinderella. And this enormous CD player Walkman that I would carry around that was probably the size of a VCR. <laughs> but uh, Tom Kieford, Cinderella, broke up around 1995. After Heartbreak Station, he suffered some paralysis in his vocal cords. And they told him he'd never be able to sing again. But he's um, kind of changed the way he sings and, uh, you know, has been doing shows now and got beyond that. But uh, uh, Cinderella's toured a few times after that. But if I could have seen Cinderella pre-1990, I think that would have been killer to get to see them. Just kind of one of my bucket list bands. I'll make you slightly jealous, Rich. I got to see Cinderella in 2000. Uh, nice. And yeah, I know he had had vocal problems, but he sounded amazing that night. That's great to hear. Yeah, I read some article that said that his warm-ups now for shows last longer than the actual shows wow. because he has to train that hard. So, I mean, that really says something about a guy who puts that much commitment into it for the love of music. Because I know after that, he kind of had a bit of a, a bout with depression. So, uh, you know, it, it's awesome to see him still doing his thing, you know, no matter how it sounds. Yeah. And then the last band is one of my favorite bands of all time, and that's Pink Floyd. I would have oh. loved to see Pink Floyd. Any iteration of them, you know, up until Division Bell, I would have loved to seen any of those shows. And uh, sadly, it's just one of those where you're just born a little too late to get to see Floyd. So, uh, yeah, that would be my final pick. Uh, Roger Waters, you know, pre-COVID time toured the wall and he does a lot of the Pink Floyd stuff. I think yeah. he'll do like tour cycles on Pink Floyd albums. Like I think he's done Animals in the past. Would you settle for that, or does Gilmore and the rest of them have to be all together? Uh, for me, they have to be all together. I mean, yeah. last year I got to see David Byrne, you know, from Talking Heads, and while I thought it was a fantastic show and I enjoyed it, this was going to be my honorable mention or one that I had to weed through, so I'm getting in a fourth pick now too, Josh. Uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Talking Heads would be a band that I would go nuts to see, like uh, late seventies, early eighties, especially like a CBGB show, you know. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Cool. Well, that was good. Good topic, Rich. That was fun to think about and come up with another list.
right, guys. So let's go ahead and roll into pickups. Let's let our guests go first. So, Addicted, you want to start us out? You sure you want to spend the next hour and a half just talking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, some things that you've picked up maybe in the last few weeks. Oh, okay. Have you gotten that much stuff? Actually, I've got so much junk from here because GameStop has been in like $5 here, $3 here. I picked up uh, Fallout 4 for $3 a piece for both the X1 and PS4. I mean, there's just tons of little stuff like that. What I want to talk about today is the big thing, the uh, mullet machine, or as I like to call it, the shmup station. So a couple years ago, I had an idea that I was going to take my lonely desk with one monitor, and I was going to build something so it was easier to play games. What I transformed into was a little bit of a monster. So <laughs> I, I have four PCs here, two desks, and seven monitors. Wow. <laughs> and out of those is several consoles hooked up to it as well. And so I, I started shopping on Goodwill and getting 24-inch monitors with HDMI and all that stuff and attaching the pigtails. You know the three pigtails are right where you can do three inputs and one output? Yes. Yes, because that way it doesn't require extra power. So I have one. I have a quad setup of four 24-inch 1080p monitors that are set up to do that, and then they're attached to one computer that handles those four monitors via DVI or computer connections for doing all sorts of work-from-home stuff. I've got a test computer so I can test out certain stuff. It's mainly been my Linux play machine. To the left of that are three monitors that can either go horizontal or vertical or basically uh, Tate mode for shmups and all sorts of stuff. And that I have a Windows XP machine and I have a Windows 10 gaming machine. To the left of that, I have a Kallax that's all filled up with all sorts of various stuff they found there. I have a jailbroken Xbox 360, a jailbroken Wii, and a jailbroken PS3 for playing all sorts of games. And everything's hooked up and it can rotate on there. And it's just cords everywhere, but it works. <laughs> I have... Seven monitors, two desks, and they, they're all set up to play games or to do a function. And it's pretty neat. And then I was getting ready and everything going, and I actually ended up with some more monitors. So I've created a sort of like a dueling station. For those of you who are on RF Generation, Slacker on there is a king of getting everything set up. And I followed his guidelines for not trying to funnel people into a certain place. Mm-hmm. So by doing that and working on different setups, I have around 60 to 70 consoles hooked up. I have about six or seven different setups in the basement for different stuff. So I've got one that has a CRT on it that I've set up for doing light gun games and it has a PS2 that can connect. You know the Firewire port on the front of the PS2? No, I, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, some of the earlier models, basically the 5000s or lowers, have a fire wire port and you can use that to hook up together to link two ps2s and then you can do dual time crisis 2 using crts so that was the main deal with the that tv so i've had a 27 inch um jvc d series tv for doing all sorts of stuff that can be rolled around i have a old windows 98 pc that's hooked up and rolled around i have an rf cart that has a 2600 a ColecoVision, a nintendo Famicom and and television on it. I'm doing it, and it's got the nice wood grain molding to the TV. I've got a mister all hooked up and ready, and that's doing dual output. So we have a drop ceiling in the basement. And I ran a HDMI cable through, so that way it drops back to the projector, so I can use both outputs of the mister 
Yeah, with the analog going into the projector, and then the other, the HDMI is going into the TV. So that way I can do all sorts of arcade cores. Like, that's how I've been playing UN Squadron. Basically, you know, a whole lot of home improvement in the basement is what I've been working on. That sounds awesome. And you're speaking my language with all these jailbroken consoles. I still don't have a jailbroken 360, but, uh, you know, maybe someday. I have so many Xbox 360s, but they're all factory, you know. I ended up with five of them. So at that point, I was like, well, I might as well get one that's jailbroken. And it has a USB port on there that simulates or emulates the DVD drive. So I hooked up a two terabyte drive to that and use it for loading a bunch of the normally used stuff so I don't have to dig out the disk each time. Nice. So addicted. I'm imagining your gaming area looking like a mall security room. You know, <laughs> like there's little rooms in the mall. <laughs> Actually, a lot of the monitors. <laughs> My son's really big into Legos. And so I don't need security. I'm more likely to step on the Lego and scream so I know you're down here than anything else. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I set him up with his own setup. He's got an Xbox 360, a PS3, and a a Wii system. A couple years ago, people were getting rid of this stuff left and right. I picked up several Wiis for $10 a piece. The Xbox 360, if anybody has a half-price books around you, they used to do tons of coupons, so I wait till it got the... 30, 40, and 50% off. And then I'd set aside, you know, they will set aside items for about a week, maybe a little bit longer. So I'd set aside three of the consoles that I wanted. And then I'd go get the cheaper based one on the 30% off, the little bit more expensive one on the 40% off, and then the most expensive on the 50% off. They were getting rid of PS3s. I got two for 25 bucks a piece. Wow. And then I picked up a Xbox 360. These are S models. For around twenty five, and then twenty one dollars for a slim PS two. This is like a year or a half ago or two years ago when they get rid of stuff. I saw people doing it with uh, Saturns, people doing it with Wii U's. It's really good idea to keep an idea out on the coupons and take a look at your local half price books. They didn't do it as far as I know this year because of COVID and well, everybody needs money, right? So yeah, I remember when they were just giving like the first Xbox. People were just basically paying you to take those from them at one point and it's funny those things are now selling in retro game stores for 50 and 60 dollars so yeah it's nuts yeah it used to be if it wasn't nintendo nobody cared nowadays if if it's anything that that plays or looks old oh atari flashback six or someone like that here they'll throw that in there (laughs) just prices as a whole have gone up because people are home people are getting unemployment checks or or they're getting government stimulus checks, and they are using that to get video games because they can't go anywhere. Yeah, everyone's sold out of consoles right now. All the uh, game stops in the area, and we have probably close to 10 in this area, and none of them have like a Switch or an Xbox One or PS4s. So it's crazy. Crazy times. Indeed. Even looking at importing from Japan, you used to... You have a seller who'd be offering you Japanese GameCubes for about $30, and they had Mega Drives for 50 and you could get a Saturn for about 60 And these were decent shape, well-working. Nowadays, it's $80 plus shipping. Hopefully, when we talk again, the price will have gone a little bit back to normal. Yeah, I hope so. Are, are those all your pickups? Well, I could keep going, but I... <laughs> the entire place. The one thing I do want to say is this week the 8-Bit-O controllers are released. Those were a Father's Day gift, so I'm looking forward to getting and trying those out, the Nintendo one and the Super Nintendo one. Nice. 
All right. Josh, what pickups have you got? Um, well, I'll just hit a few highlights, I guess. I went ahead and got the TurboGrafx Mini, and mm. uh, that's pretty cool. Um, a lot of the complaints about it are legit. Uh, you know, there is a little bit of input delay on some of the games, and there are some sound issues with some of the games. But overall, it's a pretty good package, and it's something that I am glad to see a lot of enthusiasm around, especially with as big of a flop as the TurboGrafx was in North America. You know, it was very niche. I knew about it. I wanted one. And um, there was a kid in my brother's class who had one. But realistically, they just weren't around. They weren't a big deal. Uh, so I was glad to get that and get a chance to play around with that. Uh, my brother hooked me up with a large Sega Genesis lot from his local Facebook marketplace. So I got two Model 1 Sega Genesis consoles and a stack of controllers Mostly really awful third-party controllers, which I kind of dig because it'll be fun to mess around with those and see how bad they are. Uh, but then also I got a handful of boxed games, some of which are duplicates, so I'll be turning those around. But I also got this cool case for loose carts, and it looks like it was made specifically for Genesis carts because it's the right size. It has these two stickers that kind of go down the spines in between that say Sega Genesis 16-bit. Uh, and so it's kind of a neat little holder for carts. And it has the holes on the back that you can, so you can put screws on the wall and then mount it on the wall. Now, I'm probably not going to do that, but it's a neat item. The Streets of Rage 4 physical that came out from Limited Run Games finally shipped. That came in the mail here this last week. Yep, I got my copy as well. Yeah, and I was glad to see that they included the CD soundtrack yeah. you know, because of the delay and production and everything. Yeah, and the opposite side of the insert is actually Bare Knuckle 4, which is really awesome, too. Some great artwork on yeah. that. A couple of video game vinyl items that have come recently. Finally got my copy of the uh, Life Force vinyl that shipped out. I've <laughs> uh, been waiting on that for a long time. Mine was delayed maybe a little bit longer because I pre-ordered another album at the same time, and so they shipped them together. And then there was a pre-order that went up for a company called Enjoy the Ride Records, and they were doing one for the Alien Crush and Devil's Crush soundtracks, both TurboGrafx pinball games. Yep. So I got my copy of that last week. I waited a little bit, so I didn't get the splatter vinyl that they did, but there was one that they did where it was like the silver ball, where it has three kind of large splotches on it, so when you spin the record around, it looks like the pinball's spinning around. Oh, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, man. but my copy came damaged, uh, and so I contacted the company, and they're going to ship me out another one, which is really nice, but... Yeah. I have not have not had the chance to spin that yet because the copy that I that I got was was damaged. And then other than that, I mean I've I've got other things, but mostly I'm just waiting on stuff to ship. You know, I've got a couple orders in with Run. I'm still waiting on the two orders from oh what is it? Is it Dispatch? Am I thinking that yeah, uh, yeah Dispatch. Twenty twenty one is a year. Yeah. Well, they, they said that they were going to start shipping out stuff in July for one of them, but, you know, they, they did a Switch physical limited edition of the Game Paradise. They were doing also a 
a limited edition version of Radergy Swag for the Switch, both of which were supposed to come with vinyl albums. And then I've got a, a contact in Japan who goes out and does retro hunting and then sells stuff on Facebook. And so I've ordered, I don't know, a handful of things from him. Now that the post office in his area has opened up again, he started to ship stuff. So I'm hoping here within the mm-hmm. next couple of weeks to start seeing some of the stuff that he's going to be sending me. Yeah, it's been crazy over there, man, and uh, getting stuff. And when I talk about one of my pickups, I'm definitely going to share a story about that. <laughs> All right, Sean, what stuff have you picked up recently? Uh, nothing video game related. As I kind of was discussing earlier in the show here, I've kind of, <laughs> it's funny, the ebb and flow that I've been going through. And if you've If you're a consistent listener to our show, you'll know that I've gone from being a complete spendthrift, wasting all my money on video games, to being a complete tightwad, spending no money on anything, let alone video games, to getting a couple things last month, and now I'm back to not only not spending money on games, but selling like a madman to try and you know, catch the wave of the prices of certain things pumping like crazy. And I've said in the past that I've been trying to get up the motivation to sell uh, some of the extra consoles that I have. So I finally started digging stuff out of the dreaded closet, took out the bins full of controllers and sorted them out and I actually had a lot of fun. I got my wife to help me test all these uh, Super Nintendo and NES controllers. That sounds romantic. Uh, it was it was actually a lot of fun. And <laughs> it's uh, one of the more fun "What Are You Playing?" segments. When I when I get to it, I'll tell you how we kind of went through it. Um, but yeah, so selling consoles is a certain more amount of work than just selling games. I want to be a good citizen of eBay, and I want to keep my seller rating perfect knock on wood so i test all the functionality all the controller ports all the buttons on every controller that's part of the lot so it is what is significantly more work than selling just games but the reward is better both monetarily and from a space perspective the space that you know a console and all the hookups and a bunch of controllers takes up that you save by getting rid of that stuff is even more rewarding than just taking one cartridge or one game off the, you know, one DVD case off the shelf. So it's, uh, it's a little bit more work, but it's more rewarding. And, uh, I'm just trying to stay motivated. Even like during the week, I'll go in and pick out like one or two things to list on eBay, you know, while I'm drinking my coffee in the morning, it's convenient for me. I've mentioned this in the past that I can ship from my workplace because we have a daily mail and FedEx pickup. So I have options there. I don't have to go to the post office or anything. So I'm trying to take advantage of that. Yeah. So I don't know how long this is going to last, but my motivation is at like an all-time high to move this stuff. I'm sure there will be things coming down the line like Deadly Premonition 2. I do want to get that. And like the Persona 5 Muso game that's going to come out whenever it comes to the West, I want that. So there will be things that I'm going to get, but right now it's it's all about selling stuff. Nice. Well, we'll just change the name of this segment for you. We'll just call it Shit I Sold to Rich this past yeah. month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
because that's what's happening. That's a good way to kind of segue into my pickups. Uh, the first thing I got uh, was from Sean, and that is a Game Boy player and disc for my GameCube. I'm so happy to finally have one of these. I wish I would have bought one a long time ago. The cool thing is, is when we played Final Fantasy Adventure on the Game Boy a while back, I actually played that on the Super Game Boy on my Super Nintendo, and I just enjoyed playing handheld games on a TV. It's just so great, and I actually really prefer that as opposed to the small screens. Though a lot of times I can go back and forth if I'm playing it on my TV, I can take the handheld to work and play during my lunch break. So yeah, it just gives me a lot more options, and I'm really, really happy to have that. Now, we don't have to talk about the deal you and I made, but did you happen to see the receipt that was in the case of the disc? I still have not looked at that yet, man. You mentioned that to me. Okay, I'm going to spoil it. Uh, so I paid, I think, 13 and change, $13 and like 49 cents for that Game Boy player. Wow. <laughs> And if I had known what the price would be today, I would have bought 10 of them. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, one of the things Sean did include that I do want to mention is there's this little sandwich baggie and there's a note stuck on the outside of it. It says official Nintendo installation tool. And inside of it was a penny. So, uh, yeah, it's funny. It's going to go up on my wall, man, in my game nice. room. I love it. Awesome. And I actually used that penny to screw it into the bottom of my GameCube. So that's you'll be great. happy to know that. Yeah, that's yeah, great, I love man. It. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. My other pickup was a game that I had heard a lot about and got great reviews, but it only came out as a physical edition through Limited Run Games, and I missed it before I actually knew a lot about this game, and that was Firewatch on PS4. But uh, I was able to find a copy of it in a group. Price was not bad at all, uh, considering. Uh, I know this is a popular limited run title, so happy to add that to the collection. Uh, Josh will be happy to know I picked up some really cool Game Boy and Game Boy Advance games recently. I think I probably sent him the pictures, but I got Amazing Penguin for the Game Boy oh, and yeah. also the first Adventure Island. So uh, yeah, happy to have those games. My setup for my Game Boy games is I basically have these bamboo silverware drawer organizers, if you know what I'm talking about. And the Game Boy games fit like perfectly in those slots. So I've got some screws on the side of my bookcase that I hanged them from. And they were just kind of hanging down. And every time I would hit this bookcase or swing my chair around while we were podcasting, I would knock all the Game Boy games in the floor. It'd be all over the place and I'd have to go back and reorganize. Oh. So I bought some like little L brackets and now they kind of jut out a little bit. I put the L brackets at the bottom so it keeps them from like leaning forward. And uh, yeah, it's it's great, man. You can hit the shelves and everything and, you know, nothing falls. Just a little uh, homemade mod I did recently. I also picked up copies of Lunar Legend, Double Dragon, and R-Type the Third Lightning on Game Boy Advance. And Josh, you're telling me this Third Lightning doesn't have the best reviews, right? Yeah, the Super Nintendo original game of R-Type 3 is great. Yeah, I have it. But the, the Game Boy Advance port was not well received, and it's janky. Yeah, that's cool. I like to collect shmups for all my consoles, so I was still glad to have it, and it was at a good price. Uh, I, I got it, Double Dragon, and Amazing Penguin from a, a guy on a Facebook group. So I've had a lot of success recently in those. And then my wife and I last weekend went out of town for 4th of July, and I hit a few game stores 
on the way up to spend time with my in-laws. And I actually picked up copies, um, actually good prices for uh, Mega Man Soccer, which I had been looking for. And also another game uh, that was on my list was uh, Kendo Rage on the Super Nintendo. So got both of those games. And then the next few pickups, Dick did, you and Josh are going to love these. I picked up my first two ever Mega Drive games. And both of those were shmups. I had been waiting on these games. I ordered them April the 4th, and they just got here last week. Wow. And so I was contacting the seller and, you know, clearly, like, after a while, was getting kind of upset about it because these aren't the cheapest games. And they were contacting me back. You know, when you order anything from Japan, I've never had a bad experience with the seller there. And they're just overly nice. Finally got them last week. And that is Curse and Zero Wing for the Mega Drive. (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to laugh, but I actually have a copy of Zero Wing. It was my first Mega Drive game. And that's why I got the Mega Drive so I could play it. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. Welcome to the Curse Club. I got my copy of that uh, last year. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I saw it locally like a few years ago, and uh, I didn't pick it up. That game has the best cover artwork I've ever seen on the game. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's an amazing front cover for a, I'll say, mediocre shooter. Right, yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. <laughs> I mean, it's a fun game. It's just not anything special. Right. Still excellent pickups. And there is one other thing that I should mention, and I... I haven't posted this, but I did get sent a very special package by Bickman that I've got to still finish paying him for, but included many nice things in like a promotional copy of a Drudge Dread Cart. Yeah. That was wow. pretty neat to see. And then there's uh, everyone's favorite, you know, Last Action Hero, which uh, was a spectacular game. But <laughs> <laughs> I did, did finally get a working 7800. Nice. From him as well. So I can use that for uh, paperweight. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I want to use that for uh, is Desert Desert Falcon or is it Desert Hawk? I forget the exact Falcon. name of that title. Desert, Desert Falcon. Falcon. Desert Falcon yeah. Yep, that's the entire reason I want to try it for the seventy eight hundred. And then my local half price books had Galaxian for the fifty two hundred, so that will be interesting to try. But as I said, just tons of bobs and bits all over the place here, and sound like great pickups only. Except I think Sean beat us out. He's just going to have a money gun that shoots money with all the stuff he's been selling. (laughs) Uh, I'll get into a few more of my pickups because I'm not quite done yet. I also got copies locally of Metal Black and Don Pachi for the Sega Saturn. uh, Heck yeah. Yeah. So I I was really, really pumped about these two. These are the first two shmups I've bought for my Sega Saturn. Of course, I've got an action replay card so I can play them and... uh, Usually with shooters, you don't have to worry about dialogue, so um, definitely really pumped about having those to start that collection out. And then uh, for my Vectrex, I actually got box copies of 3D Crazy Coaster and 3D Narrow Escape. I only have one more game left for a complete collection of Vectrex games, and uh, that is Mindstorm 3D, which Mindstorm is the game that comes on the Vectrex. It's not a cart, but it just comes on it. But they did a 3D version of it. It actually came with the um, 3D imager goggles. But the problem is, is I can find copies of this on eBay easily, but there is a color wheel that goes inside the 3D imager goggles that spins as you play to make everything 3D. And it's harder to find that color wheel with the cart, and I have to have that to play it. So 
you know, I could finish up this collection, but I'm just going to be patient and wait for both of them to pop up. And that time uh, I'll have that complete. So uh, that's something that I definitely have to look forward to. This morning, I mentioned you guys on the call before we started recording. I was up to like 2 a.m. last night hanging out with my neighbor. And I got up this morning at 7 o'clock and did a four and a half hour round trip drive to pick up a Berserk arcade machine. Berserk is one of my favorite games of all time growing up. I played so much of that on the 2600, and to have the actual arcade machine with all the sounds is uh, it's just incredible. The Atari 2600 was missing all the dialogue and the robot sounds. They uh, provoke you and call you a chicken and stuff like that when you run away without killing all the robots on the screen. And I think someone on Atari age actually did a cart with the uh, robot voices in it. So that's pretty cool. And if you are looking for a good port of Berserk and don't want to pay the price for a cabinet, you know, I would highly suggest that. This um, cabinet actually also has a what's called a J-Rock board in it, which allows me to also play Frenzy, which was Berserk 2. I believe Frenzy on the ColecoVision may be the same game. And then finally, I wanted to save this pickup for last because this was something special I received in the mail yesterday. A few months ago, I sent uh, our buddy Bill from the Collector Cast a little package, a lot of things I had been picking up for him. He's trying to collect a lot of hockey games and, uh, you know, some other stuff that I had seen that I thought he might enjoy. I picked it up for him because we were going to room together at Retro World Expo, but then that got canceled and the two of us were really, really disappointed. So I just went ahead and sent him the package up and then. Yesterday in the mail, I received a record-shaped package, and uh, Josh, I can say that I also now have a Life Force vinyl, and uh, it is actually the limited edition, the green one, which I was so happy. I kind of hesitated to pull the trigger on this vinyl and ship the shore last week for um, video game day. They did 50% off all their video game vinyl. So I ended up buying a copy of Life Force and Gradius 2 and 3, which I had been uh, eyeballing as well. But uh, with the extra copy of Life Force, I'm going to keep Bills because it's the limited edition. And of course, it was a gift. But uh, with the other one, I'm probably going to use it for some sort of contest or something on the site. So, uh, you know, our uh, listeners and our members can kind of be looking forward to that. I got a quick question for you. Sure. Did your limited edition vinyl come with a signed copy of Sleepers? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's for, awesome. for those of you who don't know, Bill was an extra in Sleepers. <laughs> I'm sitting here, when you said that, I'm sitting here thinking like, what the hell video game is Sleepers? But, uh, but yeah, yeah, that's right. Bill, I think, had an uncle or something that worked on the movie Sleepers, and he got to uh, ha- have a little part. I've actually never seen that movie, uh, but I really just want to watch it just to see uh, Bill's acting chops, you know? Huh. It's a real bummer of a movie. That's the one unfortunate thing about it. <laughs> yeah.
right, so let's go ahead and move on into games played. And once again, Addicted, I'm going to let you start us off. Oh, geez, you're going to be sitting here for an hour again. <laughs> well, just some of your highlights, okay. please. That would be <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, I am luckily enough to be involved in two different libraries, so I get to play a ton of games. So I've been playing, let's see here, The Last of Us 2. I've been playing Animal Crossing New Horizons, uh, Xenoblade Remastered. I've been trying a whole bunch of limited run stuff on there. Today I just picked up uh, Circle of the Moon 2. I've been playing UN Squadron, SDOJ, was it DFK, DDP. I feel like I'm naming drugs or something instead of shmups <laughs> here. Let's see. <laughs> I've been playing Strikers 1945. Speaking of Psycho, I've been trying all sorts of different stuff on the Switch. I've uh, tried the Final Fantasy VII Remake, and that game plays so much more like an action game. It's really hard for me to keep going with it, but I'm near the end of it, so I might as well keep going with it. Clubhouse games for the Nintendo Switch, Stranger Things 3. I've been playing a lot of tracks and Lego games with my son. Just all sorts of stuff, but the big things, of course, is the Shmup Game of the Month. And then Last of Us 2, which has really bummed me out. Yeah, I hear this game's a little divisive. Very divisive and very violent. It's hard to deal with a game that talks about a virtual pandemic in, as we're living through it. Now, keep in mind, we don't have zombies roaming through. Yeah, I, I guess. Not yet. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Some people <laughs> say 2020, stay tuned. <laughs> but some, some might argue that we maybe do have some zombies. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's very violent and it's very intense it's one of those things where i have to take breaks as the story just pulls in but i am enjoying my time playing through it i could definitely see why it's divisive and it's not for all i don't agree that uh, death threats are the right way to go and mm. resolving the divisiveness um should remember that it is a video game that was good, and I would have to say Animal Crossing New Horizons really got its hooks into me, and if I hadn't had to return it to the library, I'd still be playing it. Uh, one other thing I should say, The Secret of Mana, the remake, mm -hmm. I tried that out, and it feels very much like a here's an HD skin on top of it. <laughs> Again, this is just my opinion, but I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. Yeah, I remember that being a big thing when it came out, but after it came out, I didn't hear a lot about it, so I'm, I was kind of surprised. Yeah, it's going down pretty quickly as well on the pricing. It, it's already dropped to about, I think, around July 4th. It was 28 or $27 for a Switch version. All right, Josh? Well, I certainly haven't been playing nearly that much. Uh, I've been busy with other things. I haven't really had any weekends to do much of anything. So, obviously, I've been playing the game we're talking about. I've been playing UN Squadron now. Addicted mentioned the uh, the Mister before, and I actually got that here recently and got it set up. And so I've been messing around with that. I started messing around with some Game Boy games on that and started playing some of the arcade cores. And so, you know, you've got Capcom CPS-1 on there. And so I was messing around with Street Fighter 2, Ghouls and Ghosts, and 1941, and Varth, and the UN Squadron arcade game. And so I was kind of playing around with that. And then the next day or two later there, I think it's Jotago had updated the, the Tecmo core that he was developing. And so 
all of a sudden now you can play the arcade version of Silkworm. So I was like, oh, yeah, I got to try that. So I was messing around with that for a little bit. In my process of testing some things out with the Mister and getting the Game Boy stuff going, I was like, oh, well, that's given me motivation to go back and start playing through my Game Boy library again and start doing reviews. So I actually played the Stargate Game Boy game and took some video footage of that and wrote a review. That is actually up on the front page at rfgeneration.com in case anyone is interested. So hopefully I can kind of get back into a bit of a rhythm with that and start getting some more Game Boy content out. But uh, yeah, I, I haven't been playing a whole lot other than the game of the month just because I haven't had a lot of time. But I'm hoping that starting next month I'll have my weekends back and I can begin to uh, dive into other things. Nice. Well, I would let Sean go next, but I'm sure he's played a lot more than I have. <laughs> you always say that, and it's rarely true uh, lately. I know, dude. <laughs> it has to be true this time, because the only other game that I have been playing is the game I told you about on the show last time, this damn phone game that my kids got me into called the Battle Cats. It's a little tower defense game, as I mentioned before, but it's so awesome, man. I'm not even a cat person, and I, I love this game. I think it's so hilarious. The animation in it is so cool. You get these different cats to battle with. For instance, the silliness of it, there's one cat called Sick Cat, and it's just this cat sliding across his back pushing himself with his feet and he's got this IV drip in his arm and that's how he fights. He swings the <laughs> IV drip. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny and so wrong in so many instances as well and uh, it's cool, man. I, I love it. The hand-drawn stuff is great. I'm not a phone game guy, but this one has gotten its hooks into me. So that's the only other thing I've been playing other than our game of the month, which uh, I have a huge blister on my thumb right now from playing so much. So, huh. yeah. Nice. And I am looking, Rich, because I forgot to last time. The Battle Cats is available on iPhone. I thought it would be, yeah. Yeah, it's been around yeah. for a few years, apparently, so... Uh, well, I just might download it and give it a try. Yeah, cool. And uh, if you want to, you can watch videos online. My kids just watch Battle Cat videos all the time by a guy named Captain Sauce. So, okay. <laughs> <laughs> if that's your thing, if you get into it, I can uh, recommend those videos because my kids are completely addicted to them. Nice. Well, I guess that just leaves me. I've been playing a lot of Earthbound, but of course we have all of next month's show to talk about that. And the rest of the games I've played, like I said, are mostly tied into me testing systems. So I wanted to inventory my Super NES situation. I had two Super Nintendos. I actually sold one while we were on the air just now. So that's <laughs> awesome. And uh, multitasking. I dra what? Multitasking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I just had my email open and I got that glorious, your item has sold and you've been paid email series from eBay. But that involved dragging everything out, deciding which one was in worse condition because that would be the one I'd get rid of. And then having 15 controllers and testing them all and culling out the bad ones to sell. And, and when I say bad, I mean just like the more beat up grungy ones. They have to, like I said, be in working order. But what was cool about this was 
I got my wife to help me. I pulled out her favorite game on the Super Nintendo, which is Tetris Attack, which for people who don't know, this is a game that has nothing to do with Tetris. It's actually a Western port of a game called Panel de Pawn, which is now available on the Super Nintendo emulator on the Switch if you have Nintendo Online. So it's basically a match three puzzle type of game where you move tiles around and you do combos and it's really cool. But one of the things that's awesome about it is my wife is like a savant at this game and she can beat it with her eyes closed on like the hardest difficulties. And it's kind of amazing because she's not in general like good at video games uh, at all. And she'll be the first one to tell you that. But I don't know if it's just one of those skills like the puzzle game itself or however the game works, like just really clicked with her. So I had her in the room. I said, you want to play some Tetris attack? And she's never going to say no to that. So I was like, here, okay, fire it up, try this controller. And then she'd beat the level and I'd say, all right, pause it here, try this controller. So I keep swapping out controllers and having her pause. And it, it was a lot of fun. It was actually really cool. And then we did the same thing with a couple NESs that I had and uh, you guys mentioned Life Force a couple times, and it's funny because the game we used to test the NESs was my copy of Life Force. So got a little bit of playtime in that game. That's one of my childhood favorite games. I played it a lot with Jesse on the NES, uh, doing the multiplayer with the Konami code and just beating it together. So it's a really special game to me. Uh, I haven't played it all the way through in a very long time, and I didn't this time either. I was just, again, trying to test like 20 different NES controllers to see what worked. But uh, I might have to just sit down and beat that game one day. And then, you know, my wife and I, we <laughs> we got on this uh, kick of trying to play multiplayer games together. So we played a little bit of Lego Star Wars The Force Awakens, which got really good reviews when it came out because it has like third-person cover shooter parts, and I think people really liked that. Oh. But my wife and I were having a lot of trouble with the way the camera was set up, and I don't know if it was different than previous games or if we're just, like, sensitive to it, but, like, modern LEGO license games, when you play them multiplayer, if your characters get too far away from each other, it does a split screen, but then the split of the screen moves around like it's not just like bifurcated through the middle or this you know the uh, parallel it's kind of moves around and i found myself getting a little queasy so i asked her if we could stop playing that game <laughs> so we ended up playing a little bit of the second viva piñata game which is a nice relaxing kind of cutesy very very low stakes game where you just kind of move a cursor around a garden and decorate the garden and dig ponds and plant grass and stuff. And then these little pinata animals come to your garden and <laughs> it's, uh, it's very relaxing. It's one of those like simulators that it's like, Oh, is this actually a game or it was pretty fun though. You get to beat the animals with a stick. No, but it's funny because the, the garden that we started in had a train rolling around a track and this little worm comes out. The worm has become a citizen of your garden or whatever. And then he squirmed onto the train tracks and got run over and squashed by the train. <laughs> but luckily it was very like cartoony and cutesy. Like it just was like squished him for a second and then he just popped right back up and kept going across. It's, a, you know, it was just uh cutesy cartoony kind of treatment of that but it was funny and then the last thing we tried to play together but i couldn't figure out how to activate the multiplayer mode was this game lara croft and the guardian of light 
came out in 2010, but I remember even back then it got really good reviews for being a really cool like um, multiplayer experience. For whatever reason, I don't know if I missed the option when I booted it up, but when I got into the game, I couldn't figure out how to make it multiplayer. My wife was just like, oh, you play it for, you know, I'm fine. So I played it for like a half an hour and uh, I was actually really surprised how much fun it was just dabbling in it for like the first half hour of the game. And out of all the things I played here, fooling around and testing consoles and whatnot, this is a game that I might actually go back to and play more of because it's like a Diablo style action dungeon adventure with a lot of puzzle elements. But I really like the combat system because you have Lara Croft's like dual pistols But then she also has this bomb mechanic where you drop a bomb and there's an area of effect for the bomb and you can like dodge roll out of the way out of the vicinity of the bomb and then detonate it. It's not like a timed bomb. You actually detonate the bomb after you drop it. So in a Diablo style game, it it really lends a lot of creativity to the combat. So like you're dodge rolling around get off a couple shots at some guy and then, you know, drop a bomb and roll out of the way and blow it up as he's walking over it. I was like, wow, this is pretty satisfying for just a, you know, a dumb little Tomb Raider licensed puzzle game. Like, it's a pretty cool game and I'm hoping I can get more into it when I have time. Now, what systems that on, Sean? Uh, I was playing it on the Xbox 360, but it's on everything. It's on PS3, Windows, Android, all that stuff. So that's it for me. It it is a lot. It was like a handful of stuff. But like like I said, like Life Force, I I wasn't playing it to play it. I was playing it to test out stuff. And but you know, I like I like the music and I like just playing through the first level a couple times. Uh, it was really fun and brought back a lot of memories. Yeah, when you were d- checking these controllers, I remember you sending us all in the Slack chat a picture of the controllers. And I hope you don't mind me asking this question because this is one that you proposed on the Slack chat, and that is. How many controllers do you actually keep per system? And I think we got some pretty interesting answers, right? Yeah. And for once, the gang was pretty helpful. But I... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, burn. (laughs) No, I think I I hedged them off because I didn't want the Beavis and Butthead answers. I just wanted real answers. So I was just like... Yeah, you will get the Beavis and Butthead answer each time you ask a question there. Yeah, you're right. But no, I think the rule of thumb that the guys kind of shared with me was however many controller ports the console has plus two extras which mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's pretty reasonable so again where i found out i have two nes's and damn near 20 nes controllers wow. you know that i've just accumulated over the years um it was a good opportunity to to get rid of some of those well, you could use two of those controllers to make one gyromite controller that is true. That is true. <laughs> I'm definitely not going down that rabbit hole, though. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about something that's gotten expensive, man. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, no. Robot parts, that. very expensive. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. That's it for me. That's how we-
they can take out Adam Horowitz. Hurricane, you got cloud. Other DJs, you put your head out. I fuck it on the string. I bang the sing around. I do my thing. I'm in a lava lamp. It's in my brain, don't tell who I'm already freaking the biggest. But I rock well. The baby do show. And then the rustler can go. Got more rhymes than Jamaican guy mango. I got the pink link. Half the end of my stove bar. Yo, rock. So we're about to roll it into our main discussion of our game of the month, Cannon Spike. So as usual, we'll start with our question of the month. And I thought since this is a crossover episode with the Corecast guys, and also the game is a crossover game, it has characters from different Capcom franchises, I thought a good question would be, Cannon Spike is a crossover of sorts. What is your dream video game crossover? And I thought this would be a good one. People could use their imagination, kind of mash together some of their favorite franchises or characters. And uh, we got some good responses here. So Buried on Mars Kevin, he says, Star Trek cross GTA. You could float around space in the Enterprise doing odd jobs for the mafia. (laughs) (laughs) Hodge at Nintendo Hodge says would love another Nintendo RPG something along the lines of Captain N where it's a whole bunch of their IPs all together I think that's a rad answer and I think that would sell 10 bazillion copies if Nintendo ever decided to do something like that so that's a good one from Hodge next we got Bill movie star extraordinaire who says (laughs) There are already hints of Halo slash Destiny being in the same universe from the D1 lore. So how about Cyberpunk 2077 cross Blade Runner? And uh, I also think that would be pretty cool. But it's like one of those things where it looks like Cyberpunk is like super inspired by Blade Runner. So I don't know if I would want to see them like kind of mash together in that way. But that's a very provocative answer. That's Bill's favorite movie, so it, yeah. he had to put Blade Runner in there. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Next, we have Steven Eider. He said, Star Fox cross Metroid cross F-Zero for the Nintendo Space Cinematic Universe. Oh. So that could be interesting, too. That's um, a bunch of characters that you already have in Smash, so it can't be a fighting party game. It's got to be something different, so... <laughs> But I like that. More more Nintendo characters getting mashed up. Uh, next we got Isret. And of course he says, I'm not that creative. I just want Marvel versus Mortal Kombat. Nice. Anthony, of course, is the Mortal Kombat guy. And I would love to see that as well. Uh, lastly, we have JB at Need New Shorts. He says, dream crossover game? A shoot 'em up with Donkey Kong characters. Like Diddy Racing's flying parts or Mario Kart in that it's a vehicular game, but like a cave bullet hell or even horizontal shmups. Oh. I could get down with that. Shooting bananas at people. Yeah. <laughs> but only DK Universe characters, no Mario. 
And then he, he tags DK Vine. I bet DK Vine would be all about this idea. That's a Donkey Kong fan account, I think. So cool, cool answers. That's, that's everything from Twitter. I didn't get any bites on Instagram, but once again, if you care, you can follow my personal Instagram account. It's at Sean Gray. My full name just spelled out S-H-A-W-N-G-R-A-Y. And uh, I also ask it there and take responses there. So what about you guys? Let's go to the guests first. Addicted. Your dream crossover game. I would like something really nice like a Star Wars shmup. There's been a couple levels, but I would like really something within there. Or Gundam shmup would be nice. I know that they have a a beat-em-up, everyone's favorite on the Super Famicom, the uh, Super Robot Wars with the, I'm trying to think of the names, the SD SD Battles that the character we're thinking of. Anyone familiar with those titles? It's ringing a bell, but I don't know the exact names of them. There, yeah, there's five, uh, well, five of them on the Super Famicom, and I think there's a couple on the PS1. But those would certainly be interesting to see. Because we always see them in beat-em-ups, such as the SD Battler or the a fighting game. It will be interesting to see him in a different genre. Now, in the spirit of the question and like mashing IPs together, would you want to see a Star Wars slash Gundam in the same game? Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, I can see Star Wars slash Gundam. I mean, Star Wars has been pretty much put in everything else and so has Gundam, right? If it gets to the point where it's Muso, then it can go into anything, I think, right? Is Is that the point where people just say, okay, you got the license, make it. Yes, I would love to see that. Josh, what about you? Uh, I'm going to be a little vanilla in this and and say everything since Castlevania Symphony of the Night that has been in that style has been called a Metroidvania. I would love to see a Castlevania game where you could play as Samus or, inversely, a Metroid game where you can play as Alucard or some kind of Castlevania character to completely flip the script. That would be amazing. That sounds really cool. If I had to guess, you could probably do this for about two or three seconds in one of those NES Remix games. (laughs) (laughs) There's a likelihood of that. But I think what you're saying is you want an entire game that's like that, which sounds like a really cool idea. Yeah. Somebody needs to disassemble Symphony of the Night and hack in Samus from Super Metroid and just make that happen. I'm sure it's been done on some of the earlier Nintendo titles with all the uh, reproduction cards and stuff like that that are out. Yeah. What about a Metrovania where you play as Jeremy Parrish? <laughs> <laughs> that works. Rich, what about you? Well, speaking of Metroid, my crossover is Metroid with the Alien universe. So, uh, yeah, subtitle Samus's vacation on LV426. (laughs) So, you know, she goes there for a nice vacation and all of a sudden Xenomorphs just start popping out and uh, she wrecks havoc. That would be mine. There was that uh, Metroid game for the DS that's really close. I think it was made by WayForward, right? Yeah. That's supposed to be really, really good. You might want to check that out. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely do that. I was going to pick Aliens and NBA Jam, but that would just be kind of weird. (laughs) (laughs) Duncan Xenomorphs. Xenomorphs, Duncan (laughs) Duncan the basketball. He's on fire! (laughs) Awesome. Well, mine is one of those uh, weird anime things, so I won't belabor it too much, but... It is anime, but hear me out, because both of these franchises now have video games. So 
I want a game where Ryuko from Kill a Kill and Mikasa from Attack on Titan team up in some way. And this choice was inspired by the fact that they both now have really great games. The Kill a Kill game came out like last year and the Attack on Titan games are really great. They're third person action and the Kill a Kill game is a 3D fighting game, right? So... This pick was kind of inspired by a lot of fan art that I've seen over the years because these are two of the greatest waifus of all time. And uh, people like to draw them together or with like mashed up costumes of each other. So I've seen really cool art of Ryuko in the scout regiment uniform with two scissor blades. Like in Kill la Kill, she has her one scissor blade, but like the Attack on Titan characters have dual retracting blades. So like... I've seen her drawn with two scissor blades as if they were like the retracting blades from Attack on Titan. And it's, it's always really awesome. So something like that, where those two universes get mashed together and I'm not sure what kind of game it would be or what the plot would be, but you could all always like roll in some other, <laughs> you can make it as weird as you want. Like they're going to fight the Ninja Turtles or Batman or something. I don't care. Just like put them together in a game and I would pre-order it and buy it day one. That would be so awesome. So thank you everybody who answered that question on Twitter. We got awesome responses here. And again, that question was inspired by our game of the month, which is Cannon Spike, a shooter that most of us played on the Dreamcast. So before we get into it, as usual, we'll go over our participants. It was Single Banana, me, Metal Fro and Addicted, who are here with us. Red McKnight, of course, Dougley007, and a new user named Dingo. Nice. So we're going to talk about the development of the game, but as the experts on shmups and shooters, I'm going to kick it over to Metal Fro to explain about the development of Cannon Spike. Sure. Uh, before I get into that, just to, to shorten the segment for next month with the, the friends... You would call it a twin stick shooter today, but it's it's not. There are only one right. stick. Um, yeah. This is a game that Addicted and I usually term as shmup adjacent. It's not specifically a shmup, but it has those elements included in it. And so shooting game as a generic term is probably fine, just in case someone decides to send in that correction for next month. No, really appreciate the clarification there. That was very good. <laughs> yeah, um... Cannon Spike was developed by uh, famed shmup dev Psycheo. Uh, they put out a whole bunch of shooting games in the 90s, many of which were available on the Saturn and PlayStation, and those have been recently re-released uh, now that the catalog has been acquired by another person who's holding all the IPs now. And so those were recently re-released on the Switch, a lot of those are now coming to Steam in kind of bare-bones ports, but they're good games either way. That was done in conjunction with Capcom. So, of course, the game has several Capcom characters in it, and it is quite similar in a lot of ways. And this was pointed out by someone who was watching one of my streams last month while we were playing the game. Uh, quite similar to one of Psycheo's own multi-directional shmups, Zero Gunner where you play as a helicopter and you kind of rotate back and forth to um, shoot the different enemies that come on screen. It originally released in arcades in 2000 as Gunspike, 
on Sega's Naomi platform, which of course is uh, what the Dreamcast hardware is similar to. Interestingly enough, then it came to the uh, Dreamcast in Japan, and then I think we got it like a month later in the U.S., but it was actually the final game released for the Dreamcast, at least the final you know, regular licensed release during the Dreamcast's life in Europe that came out in uh, April of 2002. And it is a, I'll say, a quasi-twin-stick shoot-em-up uh, or shooting game that sort of mixes arena shooter elements with beat-em-up elements and is just a really interesting mix of, of gameplay elements and styles. Do you guys know, are there any mods or hacks of this game that make it playable in the modern twin-stick shooter way? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I think that's a real opportunity for somebody, if it doesn't exist already, like playing this on some kind of mm-hmm. emulator on the PC with like a PS3 controller would be pretty awesome, I think. Not that the game is bad, you know, we'll talk about it, but uh a few times is like, man, I wish this actually was twin stick and had a right stick to play. But right. Yeah. I think that would be a good ROM hack. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me a lot of like earlier games because you are sort of confined in the space, which were like twin sticks, like Robotron and smash TV, you know? Yep. They could have gone the way they did smash TV for the super Nintendo. You used to use two controllers. Yes. <laughs> right. I mean, why not? The Dreamcast has four controller ports. You can still do two player, four controllers, one in each hand. Oh, that would be rad. <laughs> yeah. Or, or kind of like uh, Xeno Crisis, which is a, a new game that's come out actually for the Sega Genesis. And then there's also versions on the Dreamcast and a Neo Geo and, you know, Switch and PS4. But, Basically, they play it to where your D-pad controls your character, and then your face buttons provide your cardinal directions for aiming your weapon, and and then you can kind of combine those for different things. I guess it limits you a little bit as far as what weapon you can use, though, right? Kind of, yeah. All right. Well, Rich, would you like to roll us into the story, if there is one? I'm surprised to hear that there is a story to this game, but... (laughs) Um, unlike our last couple of games, I don't think this one would be a challenge to condense into 60 seconds. So Rich, give us a story in 60 seconds. Well, I kind of fudged this one, guys. I basically just took the introduction to the game and put it down. This is the script that's actually in the game. Like you said, Sean, I mean, the story in this is almost non-existent, but there is a slight story. Hey, at least this has a quasi-coherent story, like, unlike Rock On for the PC Engine. Have you seen that? No. Look up the story for Rock On for the PC Engine. It starts out with <laughs> Dearly Beloved. <laughs> story in 60 seconds. In the year 20XX, a troubled economy wrecks havoc on the world, and terrorism is rampant. With warfare spreading to every city, People live in constant fear. To combat the terrorists, robot soldiers, the World Union for Peace organizes a special force equipped with specialized motor boots for ultimate mobility. It is up to this anti-robot special force led by Cami to enter into battle and rid the world of the robot menace. 
So that's basically it. And uh, I'm sure we'll maybe talk about some of the endings later on, but some of the endings are even more bizarre than the uh, actual story for the game, right? Oh, yeah. I like the Cami one where <clears throat> Shadowloo, the terrorist organization, says, we don't like other terrorist organizations. Let's fight them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't have competition. <laughs> So, I mean, for this story, it just seems like they came up with some very vanilla story to be able to pull all these characters into one game. I mean, I don't know how you could get very involved with a story like this. I feel like you almost have to keep it simple, you know? Yeah, I, you really can't do much with it. Yeah, not everybody could come up something as special as Tex Maxim. <laughs> Anybody have anything else to talk about the story? Anybody want to talk about motor boots? <laughs> no, and, you know, rocket-powered skate seems, uh, sure, why not? <laughs> right. Well, and the game, when it came over to the West, it got changed from Gun Spike to Cannon Spike, which, of course, is a signature move of Cammy, one of the characters in the game. Right. And so, at least there's that connection. You know what? At least it, I have to give him credit for not going the commercial route because these days it would be DLC. It's like pre-order now and you can get these special Air Jordans with wheels that go through here or you have to buy them for $15 <laughs> later you know, or those wheelie shoes that kids used to wear that were really popular. I mean, thankfully, we don't have the type of stuff and it's not made in the age of DLC. So we just stick with, OK, it's a video game, rocker power boots. Let's go with it. Right. Yeah. That explains your mobility in the game. Yeah, it's it's nuts, man. The unlockable characters would have definitely been DLC as well if it were released today. Oh, yeah. uh, Amazon exclusive Mega Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the characters a little bit because I felt like some of these picks were like really good picks, and I thought some of them were kind of odd. Well, maybe one of them isn't so odd as far as this game being released in Japan, but your characters are, of course, Kami from Street Fighter 2. You got Charlie from, um, I believe it's Street Fighter 2 Alpha. You got Arthur from uh, Ghosts and Goblins. And you got Shiba Shintaro, who is from a game called Three Wonders, which is a game I don't think we got over here, right? Well, it was an arcade-only release from Capcom. Mm, okay. And they sort of fudge it because... Sheba isn't really from Three Wonders. It's just, I think, his character is based on the character Siva from Three Wonders uh, because of some things that were kind of similar or what have you in the character design. Okay. Yeah, Three Wonders is a good game. If you can find it, definitely pick it up because it's going to be expensive most of the time. And I, I believe the PlayStation version maintains that 240p and is as close to the arcade as you're going to get. Mm, cool. Very nice. One of the other characters we have is a new character named Simone, who is a cyborg-type character. I didn't get a chance to use her, but, uh, you know, maybe when we talk about the gameplay, some of you could maybe talk about what some of her skills were. Simone is based off of the uh, female character in Alien vs. Predator, the CPS2 arcade game. I forget what it's like, Lieutenant Lynn something, yep. Yeah. And then we've got two other characters, which are unlockables. Mega Man, of course, from the Rockman series. And then Baby Bonnie Hood from the Dark Stalkers series. And technically, they're not unlockable. They're just hidden. And so it's the thing where you just move the cursor to the left of Charlie, and then Mega Man's there. Or you move the cursor to the right of Simone, and BB Hood is there. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't either, yeah. 
That was going to ask about that because what I did was I ended up using Cammy first and beating the game with her. And then I went to the left and the right and I saw that those were available characters. So I just sort of assumed that I unlocked oh. That's interesting. Yeah, no, they're they're available from the start. You just have to either stumble across it or know that they're there. Cool. So not technically unlockables, but more like hidden characters. Yep. And so uh, my question is, how do you feel about these being the characters being picked? And are there any obvious oversights that could have been added to the game? I mean, Capcom has such a wealth of characters to pull from. You probably could have gone with Super Joe from Bionic Commando. You know, that could have had some cool mechanics with the grappling arm. You mean Red Spencer? Super Joe's from Commando. Red Spencer's from Bionic. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I hate nope. to do this and be the same. Nope. Well, actually, corrections on the air is much better than yeah. next month. No, that's good. That's right. <laughs> or like Strider Hiryu, or yeah. you know, there are some other Capcom IPs that they definitely could have brought in. I mean, Strider would have been a cool one for sure. How about a Servobot? Oh, <laughs> like from uh, Mega Man Legends. Yep, and Trombon. Yeah. Oh, that would have been a good one too. Yeah, that would have been fun as an unlockable, like a like a character that you would unlock after beating the game. You know, just something fun to mess around with. Yeah, she does show up in one of the fighting games, right? Yeah, Marvelous is Capcom too. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's funny we keep talking about all these IPs, and I just keep thinking of all the stuff that they would eventually add. Like nowadays, Capcom would add Frank West as a playable character from Dead Rising. <laughs> Well, yeah, Dead Rising. I, all those DLC ideas just keep popping huh. up. In the, yeah, yeah. Right, with all these extra characters that they put in. Okay, you've got Rockman, but if you pay us an extra $1.99, you can get Roll as well. <laughs> right. Well, For that's $10, you can be Dr. Wiley. Too, like, th- this game is so, is like so far pre all of that stuff. Like It's pre-Smash Brothers, which I think is the probably the ultimate IP mashup nowadays. To answer Rich's like original question, I actually like the group here because I'm not... I'm not approaching this game as this crossover thing. I almost think it's a Cammy and kind of Charlie focused game with other characters in it. It's hard to explain what I'm trying to say here, but I didn't look at this as, oh, it's supposed to be Smash Brothers and where's Sonic and Solid Snake kind of, I know it's Capcom, but you know what I'm saying, like... I don't need to see every single Capcom character that's ever existed. I think this small little handful of pretty cool ones together. And, you know, Mega Man is kind of like the outlier to me. Like the rest of the characters lean towards fighting games, not Arthur notwithstanding. And then Mega Man's kind of like the, the odd man out, no pun intended. I enjoyed the character selection. It made the game feel cooler that it was a little bit lesser known characters you know like having a hidden character from dark stalkers you know like i know nothing about fighting games to be honest but you know like one of the more respected uh fighting game franchises that isn't street fighter so i liked it yeah it did strike me less of a sort of mashup and more just like a love letter let's see what fun type of stuff we can do right yeah similar to in some cases yy world or yy world 2 from konami yeah i was thinking about that as well good point is that similar to Parodius? Because that popped into my head as well. Same here. Parodius has a little bit of that. You could see that too, that sort of humorous take. I mean, the idea was to make a great arcade game where you could just jump in and get your fun. That's what Psycho is known for. 
and I think they succeeded really well with this, and the character choice, to me, is great for it. Well, I think we should move into gameplay, and Rich, you're talking about the rocket boots. I think the movement isn't a bad way to transition into the gameplay here. So I don't know how many of our younger listeners have played a Dreamcast. Hopefully a lot of them, because it's a great system. The thing about it is the controller, it's very divisive. It has its fans, for sure. But I'm one of those people who thinks the Dreamcast controller leaves a lot to be desired, just ergonomically. And the fact that it only has one analog stick. So character movement is done with the analog stick. And basically, your character moves and faces directions with the analog stick. But you can also use the right trigger as a lock-on mechanism. And this kind of makes the lack of a right stick, as we were talking about previously, that it's not a true twin stick shooter, that helps mitigate any kind of frustration that you can kind of bounce your lock on from enemy to enemy. And that's kind of the way that and a combination of that and strafing was how I got through most of the encounters. You have a normal attack and a strong attack on the face buttons and... That's pretty much it, right? And now, guys, I sat down with it one time. I beat it twice, and I was hoping to play it again today, but I just didn't have time, unfortunately. So that's the skeleton of the gameplay, but please jump in. Yeah, I think you have, like, four modes of attack. Right. If I'm wrong, you have your normal machine gun type shot. You have a secondary blast that's a lot stronger but a little slower. There's melee in the game as well. One of the other buttons does melee. And then you've got a special button, which I believe is the left shoulder button, which has a sort of special area of effect attack. So those are the four that I recall from the game. Yeah, there's four face buttons on there. There's a, as you mentioned, the light bullet or machine gun. There's a regular attack, which is just like a melee attack. Then there's a heavy or focus shot in most characters. And then there is a heavy attack, which on Mega Man, he does that tornado hold. And, <laughs> yeah. and then there's then there's the bomb or special attack, which, as you mentioned, is on the left trigger. Yeah, so it's like five attacks. Two light and heavy shot and a light and heavy melee. I like the way the special moves as well. They sort of, as Addicted was mentioned, they kind of integrate something from the characters in the game as well. Like with Charlie, I know he like yells Sonic Boom. That was just a really cool effect that they kind of brought those same things into the game. I don't know if any other characters did anything like that. Cammy does the cannon spike. Yeah, yeah. The one that I like particularly is Mega Man. He seems a little bit more powered than the rest. He's got that wide area of effect with the tornado hold. Mm-hmm. For his heavy, but his regular shots seem to do, do well. And his specials, he rolls up into a ball and just has huge, massive... He's basically steamrolls the enemies. Right. And I think that tornado hole being a, just sort of a minimum and just really having a wide area effect does a lot more damage to the enemy and makes the game easier. I saw Fro was using him on most of the streams. Yep. Yeah, I would say he's probably the best character in the game. Out of all the ones that I played, I felt like his mobility was good. His sprite wasn't so big as some of the other ones. And uh, I just think he was a little bit OP for the game, but uh, a lot of fun to play the game with. And I do have to echo in the statements made by Sean saying that the Dreamcast controller, I've owned a Dreamcast since December of 98 and one of my favorite systems. But when I went back to that controller, ouch, did it hurt my hands. 
Same. <laughs> so you got a Japanese Dreamcast early, I take it. Yeah, I imported one for four hundred dollars in December of ninety eight. Wow. And that's awesome. I was like playing Sonic Adventure and going, This is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. And little did I notice that after stage one, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as somebody new to the controller, really, I, I haven't played a lot of Dreamcast. I didn't have one back in the day. It's uh, you know, been one of those things that I've picked up in the last ten years. I probably have maybe 10 to 15 games where the Dreamcast can, despite being one of those. But uh, I'm on the odd end of this, man. I, I like the way the controller feels. I, I thought it was great. I've got kind of small hands, so maybe that's why. But uh, I, I thought it felt pretty good. I, I like the kind of the layout and the underside of the controller, how it kind of rolls around on the edges. But I, I do agree that it would have really benefited from a twin stick, and but that's the only complaint that I would have about it. You notice they tried to mitigate their... At least less than that with the lock-on. But the lock-on itself only lasts for about four seconds before you realize you're, oh, shoot, mm-hmm. I'm shooting in a different direction. Did anyone else experience that? Well, funny thing, I didn't even know there was a lock-on right away. I bought this yeah. game way back when it was a bargain bin title, and I picked it up for like 10 bucks back in, I don't know, 2003 or four or something like that. Scenario wishing you would have bought the entire bin? Well, Is that what you're saying? I, I wish I would have bought more than one copy, but, you know, I played it for a little while when I bought it, and, you know, I, then I kind of put it away and didn't go back to it. But when I started playing it this month, I kind of looked, you know, thumbed through the manual real quick to kind of refamiliarize myself, and then I jumped in, and I did several streams before someone reminded me, there's a lock-on feature, and I'm like, really? And then I went back and looked in the manual, and I had totally glossed over that. So, actually, the first several times I played this game... I was not using the lock-on. I was strictly going for set up my direction and hold down the shot button, you know, the light shot, so I could just kind of strafe around and then go in Mm -hmm. for melee or heavy attacks when it was appropriate. Knowing that there was a lock-on really opened it up for me and made the game a lot easier to kind of find a groove with. That's funny. I had the exact opposite experience. I found the lock on quite early, and I tried to use it a few times, and I just, for whatever reason, just was not crazy about it, and felt more at home and, you know, more comfortable using the, you know, the sort of light shot to figure out, like, what direction and the angle and everything that the enemies were in, and just got used to playing it that way, and did fine, was successful. You know, it just struck me, this game is almost like playing a game of pool in some ways. It kind of is, Set up actually. your cue ball. Yeah, I guess we should say the the lock-on, to me at least, was kind of, um, I don't know, the the word janky comes to mind because it was like a means to an end, but not super elegant. At least I didn't feel like I could skillfully like lock on this enemy, lock on the next enemy, lock, because you're still moving as you're doing it, right? So you're moving, locking on, and the movement and the direction you're facing are both controlled by the thumbstick. So you have to coordinate that with how you're locking on. So there's a lot, a little bit of finessing that you have to do. It's not the most elegant system, but it got the job done for me. And uh, I wonder if next we could talk about the structure of the game, because um, one of the big things that I enjoyed about it was that it is an arcade port or however you want to put it, that, uh, what is it, 15 levels, I believe? 10. 
Oh, it's only 10? Really? I, okay. It's like 10 or 12. It's not okay. good at all. So the levels are really quick. And also the other thing I want to throw out that we can discuss is there's, <laughs> again, I don't remember the exact number. I'm sorry, but there's so many difficulty settings for this game. And I was really happy because I was able to beat it both times on not the easiest one. So I was very <laughs> satisfied with myself. Oh, I definitely played on okay. baby. <laughs> that, that was the easiest one. It's called yeah. baby. That was a little bit weird too, because usually on the scale, they do like a scale of zero to nine. This one didn't start off with five as normal as the default, but only went up to seven. Okay. In Psycho games, yeah, they always throw in one like that baby, and then Strikers, they always call it monkey. Yep. So there's there's always that easy setting. That's a Psycho trademark that I was glad to see came into the game. And so, yeah, it goes from baby to very hard, I think. Yeah, for the record, I beat it on child both times. So, <laughs> with no continues either time. Uh, that's my accomplishment for the playthrough. Oh, one other thing I forgot to mention on here, and I'm sure you both saw this, is we have the two Street Fighter characters on there, but there's actually a third one. There's Vega, and he shows up twice. I think it's like Punished Vega or something. It's like, what is this, a uh, Metal Gear Solid got punished? <laughs> well, yeah, you've, yeah. Got, you've got Belrog, and then you've got um, uh, something like Revenge Belrog. Yes. Which we need to mention, he's Balrog in this game, which I think, wasn't that the... Uh, Name for him in that Japan. That was his yes, original name, yeah. They switched it here. Punished Balrog in yeah. Metal Gear Solid Five, Or Fallen Balrog. Disheveled Balrog. Constipated <laughs> Balrog. Irritable Balrog. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, We're going to get an advertisement oh, for that on the next Shoot the Corecast. <laughs> Do you have irritable Balrog syndrome? <laughs> <laughs> I love it.
Josh, you beat the game a whole bunch of times. Were you trying to do every difficulty level on every character or something else? Uh, no, I wanted to beat it with every character. I was focusing on Mega Man. I beat it with Mega Man on child difficulty. And then I beat it again with Mega Man on very easy. I'd have to go back to my Twitch stream VODs to see whether or not I beat it on easy because I don't remember. But then I went back and I beat it again on Baby with all the other characters. Cool. And when I say I beat it, I mean I did a one credit clear. So I wasn't using continues. Nice. It's too bad that we couldn't do it a two player because this is the only game I know of that actually changes the endings depending upon the characters it's beating with. There are two oh, player yeah. endings are different. That's right. Oh, Didn't that's realize cool. that. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, I did go back and, and beat it on the easiest difficulty level with all the characters. And that was fun to see because, of course, the endings are all ridiculous, as you would imagine, uh, given the ridiculous nature of the game's setup and, and the game in general. But yeah, that was that was a fun experience. Do the endings change at all based on the difficulty level, or is there any kind of true ending or anything, or are all the endings the same? No, they're all the same. Um, yep, okay. And if you manage to beat the game on normal or above in a single credit, you're given a second loop, like a lot of Psycho games. And, of course, the second loop is going to be harder. But even if you manage to clear the second loop, the endings are, are the same. So it's just the same base ending, credits roll, etc. Gotcha. Cool. Well, for the record, I went through the first time with Cammy, and then the second time I beat it with Arthur, and I thought Arthur, compared to Cammy at least, was like so much more powerful. It was kind of neat to see that difference in the gameplay just by switching the character, even on the same difficulty level, so... But a little slower and a bigger sprite. True. So there's kind of yes, there's trade-offs. And before anybody corrects you, you keep saying sprites, but I believe you want to say character models because this isn't a sprite-based game. <laughs> 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 Somebody's going to say it, man. You know it. I don't give a <laughs> <shit what> <laughs> <say>. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that, that's one of the things that is interesting is that each of the characters, you know, they're not just palette swaps or what have you. They are individual, unique characters with their own traits and, you know, their own attacks, their own stats, if you will. You know, some of the characters are faster. Arthur is obviously very slow. Mm. A couple of characters are in between, like Charlie or Mega Man. Um, so it it is really cool to see how the game dynamics change based on each of the characters, not just because of those things, but also because of their attacks. Mega Man and Cammy, for example, their heavy shot attack has knockback. And you can also use that in a lot of instances to do things like stun locking characters. And so a lot of the bosses, you can actually stun lock briefly, like Balrog, for example, or the boss in the jungle area or like Arthur, for example, his heavy shot kind of gives the same thing since it's like a barrage of missiles. You can stun like characters, but the difference with his is because it's an extended barrage and not just a single shot that you fire off. You're more vulnerable during that period, but you can sort of move very slowly while you're shooting off that barrage of missiles. 
So there's still a little bit of strategic play that you can do there to sort of keep moving so that he's not just standing still and totally vulnerable during that time. Yeah, I noticed with some of the special moves, and I can't remember whose it was, it could have been like Mega Man's, not special move, but your secondary heavy attack, that when you used it, you did have a little bit of time where you were invulnerable. That was kind of nice, nice little touch they put in the game. Right. And conversely, when you use those moves, then when the move is done, there's always a, I'll say like a cooldown period or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. where either you can't use it again, or there's a little bit of time there when the move is done before you can do anything else, even moving. And so there's always a period where then you're exposed and open to attacks. The other interesting thing is that each of the characters specials has different levels of invulnerability or different periods of invulnerability. Um, so like Addicted mentioned Mega Man's uh, attack before where he rolls into a ball. It's not a very strong attack, but Mega Man is invulnerable the entire time that he's wielding that attack. So while it doesn't do that much damage, it's a great way of avoiding taking damage during a boss fight or when you need to do crowd control. Whereas Cammy's special attack is like a spread of bombs that she sends out. And I think she's only invulnerable during the, the half a second or whatever while she's throwing it. And then she's immediately exposed to attack again. But conversely to Mega Man's deal, her special attack does tons of damage. And so it changes up the way that you have to play the game and the way that you approach it and the strategies that you use from character to character because they all have different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, and that's one of the positive things I'll say about this game is the attention to detail of the developers and balancing out the characters. It's a strong point of this game. Yeah. Yeah. Have you tried BB Hood's uh, special attack with a rocket launcher? Yes. <laughs> it can get a little crazy. It kind of goes everywhere sometimes. But if you get in front of an enemy like a boss and you use it, it can just continue just to kind of wail away and it does a pretty decent amount of damage. Yeah, another reason why I, it's very similar to the tornado hold reminds me of where you just get that big chunk in that nice area of effect. Yeah. Great for crowd control. Yeah, your character basically turns into like a cannon, right? Yeah, she pulls out a missile launcher and just continuously fires against her and then you got missiles going everywhere. Cool. Just to round out the gameplay conversation, I would like to talk about some of the boss battles and like the final boss battles because the game kind of crescendos with a multi-stage final boss, which I found to be pretty cool. And uh, I liked the climax of the game, but there's other little, I don't want to call them mini bosses, but there's lesser bosses, <laughs> stage bosses as you go through the game. So what did you guys think of those? Extra added challenge or just fodder, so to speak? That cat lady is definitely interesting where she's firing a, a sniper rifle, then she turns into a cat and starts firing bullets from her mouth. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a banshee type character. It's crazy. <laughs> I thought that was actually one of the more challenging of that last series of bosses uh, just because of her movement patterns and speed. But yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah. It's kind of like each stage has like a sub boss and then a final boss, which I thought was kind of neat. Everything goes by so quickly, and a lot of these type of games, you 
definitely have a lot more ads that are lower level characters. But this one, there's not a ton. Some of the stages that I liked the most were the more traditional shmup boss battles. I think you guys probably know what I'm talking about. There were some that were almost like low-level bullet hell portions of the game, you know? Oh, yeah. The first form of Sasuke when he's in that sort of flying saucer thing, and it Mm -hmm. shoots out these spreads of bullets. And then once you beat him, and then you go on to that uh, mech there. Yeah, that's very much a psycho shmup type of boss. It's very reminiscent of the kinds of mech bosses that they did for the Strikers 1945 games. Yeah, you sort of also see that bullet hell pattern in the final boss as well. They kind of bring that back. It's, you know, kind of a nice touch. Yep. I'll just say that uh, Psychic or Sting is a total jerk, and he's the lab coat dude Yeah, that you fight before the final boss. In some ways, I think he's actually harder than the final boss. Because if you don't stick close to him, he will throw these bomb things out. And they have such a large area of effect that they'll almost certainly get you. So you have to be really careful to stay in pretty close proximity to him. All right, so since we've covered most of the gameplay stuff, let's move on to graphics and sound. Again, it's a conversion of a early 2000s arcade game to the Sega Dreamcast. If you know that kind of world, you kind of know what you're going to get here. It's early 3D polygon type of models. But I think where the game shines in the graphical department is with those character models as well as with the environments. All the stages are very varied. They start, uh, Josh, it's the first four stages are randomized. Is that correct? Yeah, the first four stages are, are randomized. And then stages five through seven are randomized from the set of three and then stage eight nine and ten are always the same okay cool you could jump into this like kind of haunted house level as the first level which happened the second (laughs) time i played the game which is kind of appropriate because i was playing arthur the second time around so i was like okay cool and that's when i kind of discovered that they they were randomized so you guys were talking about the slope level. It's almost like your ice or snow stage. There's like a jungle area. The final boss areas reminded me of like a House of the Dead thing, like a lab kind of situation. So I'm a big fan of the graphics and environments and stuff. I thought it was all very colorful and flashy and definitely played like I would expect an arcade conversion to this Sega Dreamcast as far as presentation. So that um, level you were talking about was like the Haunted House. Was that reminiscent to anyone else with the Resident Evil games? I think it was meant as an homage to Resident Evil. Because mm-hmm. the dogs, you know, the Dobermans. Yeah. It's a hallmark of Psycho games to randomize a certain amount of levels, so it's definitely at home here. Now that's who you're missing in this game when we were talking about characters. Uh, Jill or Chris Redfield, you know? <laughs> but, right. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, they would be down with saving the world. But no, I, I actually like it being a little more <laughs> subtle as it is here. A jello sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that could be the special <laughs> move. <laughs> I really think the game looks really good, actually. And yeah. of course, I'm playing on a Dreamcast. I've got a VGA cable, and I'm going through open source scan converter to go from VGA to HDMI. You know, it's still 480p, but it looks amazing on my TV. 
But again, I come at it from the standpoint of thinking about early 3D stuff like the Saturn and the PlayStation and how much of a leap the Dreamcast was from that hardware, basically from the Dreamcast to what became the next generation of PlayStation 2, GameCube, and Xbox, there really isn't that much difference between them. And so I think, for the most part, the character models are pretty good and everything looks really good. It helps that the game has a a slightly more, I'll say, cartoony style for some of the characters. There are some obvious places where it doesn't look as good, like Cat Lady Beauty. When you start with the close-up of her and then it kind of pans out, it's like, okay, yeah, that character model's a little janky. But for the most part, I think everything looks really good. Yeah, I would have to agree as well. The only part that really got me was when they did the close-ups of anything. Like the Mega Man's face at the beginning of the stage, when they always zoom in and show it, gave like a creepy doll effect. (laughs) That's the only time where it really unnerved me. Everything else, I agree with you, looked great. Yeah, I also really like the art style that they use in the character select screen and all the little in-between screens for the stages and what they used for the character endings and stuff, that sort of sketch style. I really thought that was good, and it comes across very nicely on the hardware, especially if you've got it hooked up, you know, a good TV or or with a VGA cable or something. It really looks very sharp. Yeah, I played it on the Dreamcast, and I have a VGA box into the VGA input in my uh, 40-inch TV, so... I don't have an open source scan converter. I don't know what that is actually, <laughs> but but it still looked pretty good to me as well. Like I agree with what you said about how the Dreamcast was a leap above the PlayStation 1. As much as I love the PlayStation 1, there's something about the Dreamcast. The textures are better. Everything's crisper. The the resolution, you know, all that stuff was a real step above, so what about the music and sound? Uh, one, one of the things that kind of popped for me was all the sound effects. Rich was actually playing the game before we started recording, and we, I could hear some of those uh, call-outs and shout-outs from the characters when they're doing their special moves. I thought they were all really unique, as we talked about the uniqueness of each character from a gameplay standpoint. They also had these real points of pizzazz and character of their sounds, and I... Don't know if I can comment too much on the music because I don't remember it too much, but I hope you guys can. Yeah, I agree. Coming from a Capcom, a developer who is notorious for palette swaps, it's nice to see that each character is unique and has a unique personality in here as defined by the sound effects and the way that they look. It's not like press B on Nash and then all of a sudden you get Guile. It's nice because you can understand, for the most part, what they're saying on there. The explosions aren't muffled or hear anything. The music, well, you know, after the 10th time you've heard it for the same stage, you can get a little bit annoying. It's still nice and and flows well with the game. It does very well what it's meant to be. It's meant to be an arcade shooting game. Mm -hmm. It's meant to be like a Michael Bay popcorn flick where you can just jump in and start having fun. And it executes on that really well, especially with the sound effects. They do a really good atmosphere of bringing you in and... Everything is nice, crisp, and clean, and it it works really well. And then the soundtrack, well, not something I'll find myself humming outside of the game, is very well done, and not something that makes me want to turn off and put on some Megadeth or some Motorhead or something else. Yeah. 
And I'll say that about the soundtrack. For me, it just doesn't really stand out. I mean, I buy a lot of vinyl, and I know Josh does too, but, you know, I, I buy a lot of these arcade soundtracks. But although this was an arcade port in a very arcadey game, I just didn't feel like the soundtrack was as strong as it probably could have been. And Yeah, there's a couple of tracks that stood out to me. I can't remember which level it is, but there's one... Oh, I think it's stage eight, where it has this sort of slightly off-kilter, almost mad circus kind of effect to it, where everything sounds warbled and it's sort of a weird melody. One of the boss fights, it might be the one against the three mechs. I'm pretty sure the music in that boss fight, or in the preceding stage, one of the two or possibly both, is taken straight out of Strikers 1945-2, like Psycho just put the music in there. But the one track that I really did enjoy a lot was in, I think it's The Ruined Town, where you go in and it's sort of the alleyway, and it's where you face off with Balrog that first time. It's a sort of really mellow tune that plays or whatever, and that was kind of a nice touch and something that I was just sort of bobbing my head <laughs> as I was playing that stage and listening to that song. But yeah, most of it doesn't really stand out to me that much. And I kind of feel that way about a lot of Psycho games in general. The music is less of an element there. That's okay. Yeah, I think the key word that everyone is saying here is serviceable. <laughs> we can start rolling into final thoughts unless anybody has any other odds and ends they want to clean up but i think we covered everything one thing i forgot to mention earlier is on the character select screen when you have cami highlighted if you press either up or down on the the d-pad you'll select an alternate costume for her it's the blue chateau uniform with the little blue hat Uh oh you're correcting me i just said there are no palette swaps Right. Well, yeah, that's the only one in the game. And I found out about that later in the month. And so I messed around with that a little bit while I was playing. And then, of course, that way, then in the in-between screens, you get to see Cammy in the original green outfit and then also in the blue outfit. And so, of course, it's another excuse to see Cammy in the alternate outfit. Hashtag butts. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the elephant in the room, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Somebody had to say it. Did you see the ending with Simone and Cammy? Cammy basically goes on a shopping spree and then makes Simone carry everything and pay for it. Oh, huh. It's bizarre ending, but yeah, these these two player endings. Well, I'll have to do a YouTube search of the videos later, or at least find them online somewhere. 
Oh, yes. And speaking of which, I would like to shout out a YouTuber and streamer, Aquas. He's on Twitch as just Aquas and on YouTube as NeoXAquas. He did a fantastic run of Cannon Spike on normal difficulty, a first loop run with Arthur. And it was something like 8 minutes and 19 seconds. Wow. He did that last summer on GDQ. This is actually one of his favorite games. And so he came into my streams a few times to check my progress and stuff during the course of the month and offer me some tips. So he has done several clears of the game that are on his YouTube channel. Well worth watching. You'll get some good tips and tricks if you really want to dive into this game and get a lot of good information about some of the exploits and, and things. Sounds good. Awesome. Nice. All right. Well, let's get into final thoughts. I actually think that I will go first, if you all don't mind, because I don't have too much to say about the game. I really liked it, and I loved the Dreamcast. What was cool about playing this game was actually the price was in the stratosphere for as long as I can remember. There was never a time where I was aware of the game and it was $10 in a bargain bin like Josh was able to pick it up for. So I've had it as a burnt CDR for a very long time sitting on a spindle. And uh, it was cool to actually just fire it up and play through it. It was just one of those ones that I never had played before for whatever reason. And I enjoyed it a lot. And I really liked that it being an arcade game, you can beat it in a half an hour. And I liked it so much that I just beat it again with a different character. Again, wish I had spent more time with it, but it was actually a nice break to just have a game that it was a one sitting game and I was actually able to beat it twice in one sitting. It was very nice. Um, really brought back a lot of nostalgia for the Dreamcast because I haven't played it, you know, since we played um, Dynamite Cop a couple of years ago or whenever it was. Um, so my Dreamcast, to be honest, doesn't get as much love as it probably should get. Uh, so it's nice to fire it up and play this little rare uh, gem on the, on the Dreamcast. I would recommend anybody, you know, if you want to be a hardcore collector and shell out a ton of money for it, go for it. Otherwise, you know, get some CDRs and <laughs> fire up a, a an image burning program on your computer and and go to it. I am so glad you said rare gem. If you had said hidden gem, yeah, and you say it three times, Metal <laughs> Jesus shows up. And I don't even like saying the word <laughs> rare because then it confuses with rare the developer. So I'm hesitant to even use that word anymore. So Metal Jesus just pops out of nowhere. Do we call him Metal Juice? When he does that. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm going to go next with my final thoughts because I want our guests to have the final word on this game. They're clearly more of the experts running a shmup playthrough every month. And uh, if you love shmups, please, you know, get on there and join them. Their show is fantastic. I remember the first time I heard an episode of it, just like how is anyone going to be able to talk about a shmup for two hours or more? And boy, they can do it. It's amazing. So uh, hats off to you gentlemen. Keep doing what you do. And uh, we'll keep listening. So my uh, final thoughts on the game are this. I enjoyed the game. I love arcade games like this. I love arcade shooters. I thought the story was a little bland. I think they could have done a little more in that department, but it's kind of what you get with these type of games. Think about like 
games like Double Dragon or something like that, you start out and these guys just walk up to a girl and punch her in the stomach. And the next thing you know, you're coming out of a garage with a red Ferrari. So there's not always these complex and complicated stories. And I feel like with this game, that's what they kind of had to do. Just have something very bland on the surface to be able to put these characters on the same team. I really think that the strong point of this game is the gameplay. I know it's not a twin-stick shooter, but I felt really comfortable with this game and the way you would just fire in whatever direction that you were headed toward. I didn't use the lock-on, as I had mentioned, and I still had no problem with this game and really enjoyed myself other than the huge, huge blister that I have on my thumb right now for playing through it four times the other night. I know that this game is one of the pricier games on the Dreamcast. I do have it in my collection. I'm glad I have it. But as far as is it worth the money to shell out for this game, I would say if you're a collector, obviously you want this game in your collection. It is one of the best games on the Dreamcast that I've played. But as Sean mentioned before, if it's just a game that you just want to check out, it is very short Playing it so many times can get a little bit repetitive and redundant, but it's definitely a game that deserves being checked out, but maybe not dropping all that cash for it, especially in today's market. I have to say that I really like the game. It's certainly unique. It's in a phase of Capcom where they were doing a lot of experimenting, trying to see what next generation would be. Think of Power Stone when I think of this as it was, again, one of their seminal titles in experimenting in it. There's really nothing else like it. I mean, where else can you go, well, rocker-powered boots where people run around and do Street Fighter moves? Sure, why not? I think another part of this you see is that Capcom was willing to experiment with our licenses. This is not the only one where they had Psycho. We have Gumbird 2 when we have Morgan in there. And it was interesting to see all these fruits of this come out here. And I'm hoping to see some more of this experimentation come out with Capcom. That's what I was at least hoping for with the spread of, you know, the rise of indie titles. We'd see some more of these smaller projects that were produced internally at Capcom and keep going through. We saw a little bit of it with that, like, Mega Man 9 and 10, but it sort of stopped. I really want to see some more of those come back. Now, that digital distribution, you know, the, you could say bane of collecting or whatever you want to call it, but it's coming back and there's a lot, a lot more sustainable model for it. I would love to see these types of titles and these experimentations to come forward. With that being said, I really like Canon Spike and, and what it does. It's definitely unique on the Dreamcast. It does a great job in what it is. It's certainly a great title to pick up. However, it's very price prohibitive at this point in time, and I would rather somebody find an alternative method that doesn't cost as much and try it that way and see if it's for you versus paying what the current going rate is. It's a shame that it's locked behind a current paywall, and if it weren't for the fact that it involves two companies, I think we would have already seen this as a XBLA title or... Again, on GOG or, or some more one of those titles, because it is something that more people need to play. All right, Josh? I pretty much echo a lot of that. I mean, looking at the prices right now, at 100 bucks for a loose disc or over 200 for a complete copy, I can't recommend you go right out and buy this game. I'm glad I have it, and I'm glad 
that I got to revisit it for this playthrough because, you know, I never really put that much time into it. I always kind of got a couple of stages in, sort of hit a wall and never really progressed. And I just moved on to other games. But digging into it this month, I actually really enjoyed my time with this game, despite what some of my frustrations on stream might have indicated. But I found a lot more depth to the game than I had anticipated or I had remembered. And I think it's definitely worth digging into and putting the time into. But yeah, I would kind of say the same thing is try before you buy, before you drop a hundred or more on a game like this, check it out, make sure that it's in your wheelhouse and something that you're going to enjoy. It's very much a game that I'm glad that I went back to because I more than got my $10 worth for what I paid all those years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, unless you're best friends with Doc Brown, probably best to stay away from eBay from this one, right? (laughs) Yeah. So before we go into what we're playing in July and August, I want to give you guys a chance to let everyone know where they can find you, social media-wise or even on RF Generation. Again, guys, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really, really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah, really appreciate you guys having us and doing this crossover. I had a lot of fun with it, and I think it would be fun to do this kind of thing again. I echo that. Let's do it. Cool. So where can people find you guys on the internet? Twitter handles, uh, podcast feeds, all that stuff. Well, our podcast, we host it directly on RFGen. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher. It's now on Spotify, and I've been uploading the most current episode usually to SoundCloud. I'm just using the free tier to get it out there because someone requested we we get it up on SoundCloud. And then, of course, on rfgeneration.com, we have the episode there. So you can stream it there or grab the MP3 if you want to put it on your computer or device and play it offline later. We have a Twitter account for the podcast. It is at ShootCoreCast. And so you can follow that to keep up to date with the podcast specifically and to engage with us uh, related to that. I actually have two other Twitter accounts. I have at GameboyGuru. That's kind of my Game Boy focused account. And that's where I usually tweet out notices of when I'm going to be streaming and what I'm streaming, that kind of a thing. And then my personal account is just at MetalFro. And I don't tweet that much on my personal account anymore, but Sometimes I'll tweet music-related stuff or retweet a video game thing or what have you. There's also the Discord. Yes, the RF Generation Discord. We're in there, and I hang out there pretty frequently and usually engage with folks. We have our own topic or channel in the Discord for the podcast, so definitely come check us out there. Awesome. Well, Rich, should we let them announce their upcoming games? Absolutely. Yeah, so why don't you guys tell us uh, what we usually do at the end of our shows is announce the next two months' games. But we'll let you have the honors of going first here. What are you playing in July and August for the Shoot the Core cast? Yeah, so July, uh, we are playing UN Squadron. Most people, I'm assuming, are going to be playing the Super NES version because that is what's widely available. Uh, But for those of us like Addicted and myself who have a Mr., We're also going to be checking out the arcade original so we can kind of compare the two and, you know, talk about the differences and things. 
Yep, and we may have a special guest joining us for our July recording. Yes. Nice. And then for August, we are going to be taking on a PC indie shmup that came out here within the last, uh, what, year and a half or so, called Zero Ranger. And it is very much a throwback to kind of classic arcade shmups with a few twists. Uh, and it's been very well received and highly regarded. We didn't even know they were going to do this, but it seems like we timed these things very, very well inadvertently. But just last week or the week before, I think, they released a new mode that is free DLC for the game called White Vanilla. And so we'll be able to not only check out the, the base game, but also the, the new mode. So that'll be fun. And that's on both Steam and uh, it's also DRM free on itch.io. Excellent. Sounds awesome. So yeah, listeners, check out uh, rfgeneration.com and go on the uh, community playthroughs sub forum and join their playthroughs. And while you're at it, you can join ours because in July, you should already be playing Earthbound, another very, uh, it's actually not rare, but it is very expensive game. The Summer of Excess. Yeah. Playcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's on the SNES Classic, right? Is it on the class? I know it's not on the Switch Super Nintendo Online because I checked, but it might be on the NES Classic. I think it is. I think it's on the SNES Classic, yeah. So that's a good way and a cheaper way to try it. Cool. For the five of you that have a Wii U, besides Sean and, and Addicted and I, well, I guess you got one too, Rich, but mm-hmm. for the five more of you who own a Wii U, <laughs> Earthbound is also on the Wii U eShop. Yes. Oh, wow. Nice. Uh I don't want to flex. I do have a copy of Earthbound for the Super Nintendo, but I'm actually playing it on the Wii U so I can use that gamepad while I'm doing other things. So the convenience of having it be portable to the extent that it's portable within my living room is pretty convenient. So that's actually how I'm playing it. I have a copy too for the Super Nintendo. Let's all flex. Who else has a copy of Earthbound? (laughs) I do too. Excellent. I'll be the odd man out. I don't have a copy of Earthbound. It came on my box of cereal. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It was, but you know, it seems like everybody has it here. It was a Cracker Jacks toy. I swear. <laughs> no. It's... Yeah, it's my first time playing it, and I'm actually quite enjoying it. So, Super Nintendo games a lot easier even than Dreamcast games to play if you want to find the means to do so. Obviously, so. Come play Earthbound with us if you're not already. And Rich, we're playing actually a pair of games in August, so tell us about that. We are going back to our handheld systems with the DS, which is one of Sean and I's favorite systems. And we're playing Elite Beat Agents and Rhythm Heaven. We're going to switch it up a little bit, do some like kind of fun, quirky games, and it should be a lot of fun in August. I'll be taking my DS to the beach with me for 10 days, so... Uh, Hopefully, I can uh, try to ignore my kids and everyone else around me <laughs> as I play that game. These should be some um, easy pick-up-and-put-down games. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it after a long month of a fairly long RPG. 
Yeah, I'm actually really excited for this playthrough because it's something we've never done before, which is rhythm games. This was something we conceived of as a way to play not one but two rhythm games and to bring back some handheld gaming, which we like to do at least a couple times per year. So I'm really excited for this one. I've played both of these games, dabbled in them, but I've never tried to beat them or get far in them. But they're both highly enjoyable and I think everybody's going to like them. Yeah, I think the only rhythm game that I recall ever playing was Parappa the Rapper on PS1 with my brother growing up. So, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you, as always, for listening, and a special thanks to our participants and to Metal Fro and Addicted for joining us. Make sure to check out the Shoot the Core cast for their Shoot 'em Up focused monthly show. In July, we're throwing back to one of the most sought after RPGs on the Super NES, the groovy scratch and sniff adventure known in the West as Earthbound. Be sure to log on to the forums at rfgeneration.com to join the playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blamage. 
Oh, sorry. I just <laughs> yanked my headphone cord really hard. Sorry, guys. Uh, all right.